Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. This is your October 2021 episode of The Smug Buds, the podcast where we explain everything to the geese, but it is also the long-awaited return of our sub-podcast called Wes and Conversations About the Films of Wes Anderson. And this particular episode of that sub-podcast is called The French Liz Patch <laughs> of the Wilberty, Kansas <laughs> Evening Smug Buds. I'm your host, the semi-titular Will, and I'm joined as always by the equally titular Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will! I'm so excited. I am excited, too. This is a long time coming. Yes. Uh, before we get into it, do you have any old business? I can't think of a single thing. I don't want to talk about anything else. Do you have old business? We can if you do, of course. We're going we're gonna to do it, but do it quickly. So here's okay. that jingle. Old business. Okay, so you may have forgotten, and understandably, because yes. the, what we're here to talk about overshadows basically everything. But uh, last episode, when it was over... You said, we never even talked about any movies, and I was going to talk about Ponyo. Yes. So I wanted to give you a chance to say your piece for a minute or two about Ponyo if you want to. Thank you so much for remembering that, Will. Of course. So I want to talk about Ponyo because I feel like there's, you know, the last episode was children's media that is in this like sweet spot, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like with Miyazaki, I feel like in general, there's like a lot of kids movies, you know, we know that Disney and Pixar are going to be like very high quality, even if it's not like your favorite movie or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I feel like with Miyazaki, normally people do Totoro for the kids movie. And I actually think Totoro is kind of boring. A little bit. I think I've said this to you off mic, but the first time I ever saw Totoro, it was pre when they got the better voice acting. Oh, so it yeah. was like mm -hmm. the bad dub. You saw the previous English dub before there was a wide enough American audience that, you know, care was actually taken yes. for that sort of thing. And so um, the time that I saw that, um, I didn't even watch the whole thing. It was mm -hmm. a friend um, that I had in high school who was one of my best friends in high school who later betrayed me. Um, sure. but, but she was like, this was my favorite movie growing up. And she was like, let's – but the only interesting parts are the, the parts with Totoro and the cat bus. So we literally watched – she fast forwarded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like a VHS and she fast sure. forwarded to the, she was, she loved the thing she specifically loved, which I just still find so endearing is she loved the cat bus sound. Oh, okay. The like, wow. And do you have any idea? Is that the same in the dub as it is in the original I Japanese? think it is. Yeah. It probably it is, is. Right. Um, it, let me put it this way. It was the same in the version I heard the first time yeah. as the, time I heard it the second time because sure, it was yeah. the one thing I sort of remembered. Sure. Um, but that said, I think Ponyo is a perfect movie um, for adults and small children because the for, for one very specific reason, which is that those kids are the age group that I'm talking about. So Ponyo, and I forget the name of the boy, um, are the are both five. You know, mm -hmm. well, Ponyo is, who knows, eternal, but right. she's mirroring the boy who's five. And then, um, but in terms of it being sort of like a better 
movie for both kids and adults that movie is so visually dense like if Mm -hmm. you were to just read the script you would have no idea what you'd be seeing on the page like Mm -hmm. all of the times that there's just like a million sea creatures on the pay on the on the screen um that uh there's just these like giant waves that are Mm -hmm. sort of like really screwing with your perception of of space Mm -hmm. um and then also speaking of space the fact that ponyo i mean the miyazaki does this a couple of uh, in a lot of different movies but it's really prevalent in ponyo where um ponyo just sort of like shifts and molds and like when you're looking like will just very subtly go from being more or less fish Mm -hmm. in a way that is like i can't even imagine um like drawing it because it seems mm-hmm. exhausting. Right. Um so yeah, that's that's my my thing for Ponyo. Yeah. Um I think I think it's the best Miyazaki kids movie. I think you're on to something. I think you're very uh, astute to uh uh focus on that one for your s- sweet spot for families criteria. Um Ponyo is not my favorite of his movies, not very high in my rankings, but I totally get where you're coming from for why you would pick that one over some others that I might think are better, but less approachable maybe is one way to put it. Well, also like we, like I love Princess Mononoke. Right, but it's very and, violent. Yeah. yeah, that, and we we watched that with him at one point and forgot that like dudes get beheaded because I was just thinking yeah. about like the forest spirits and like even, even I'm willing to even let Elliot see the forest spirits head get cut off. Sure. <laughs> But, but people. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of disturbing imagery in that movie, and it's not yeah. really for kids. One day we'll have to do our Miyazaki rankings, because I've thought about this uh, a lot, and I think that he has a uniquely difficult-to-rank filmography. I think so, too. And I think that my opinions might be considered weird. And and are you saying that, and then we can move on, Are you because the reason I would interpret that he has a hard-to-rank filmography is because he really runs the gamut between, like, very fantastical and then, like, a movie about the dude who um, made the, like, a historical movie about the dude who made the plane that was used at mm-hmm. um, Pearl Harbor. Right. That's part of it, yeah. <laughs> and another part of it is that he hasn't made a bad movie, and so yeah. you're just ranking shades of goodness and greatness which is similar to my opinion of of wes anderson Mm -hmm. you know i think all 10 of his movies are good to great and i have ranked them but there are several that are you know really neck and neck uh fighting for their position so speaking of directors i love who have only made good movies i know um, the French Dispatch opened against a new movie called Last Night in Soho. Excuse mm-hmm. me. I <clears throat> uh, lost my voice a little bit in that sentence. And uh, I'm just so emotional uh, about these <laughs> these films. Um, I'm just bringing it up because Edgar Wright was a subject of one of my episodes of the podcast previously. So I wanted to acknowledge it, acknowledge the fact that it came out and that I saw it and that it is great. And I highly recommend it. Um, um, can I tell you a small tidbit about that movie too? Please. So I do plan on seeing that movie. Um, as I'll, I'll mention this on the podcast and I've mentioned to you, um, I've been having these really incessant dreams about Ben Schwartz. I think mm-hmm. I finally deciphered it's because of my seasonal affective disorder. Mm. I, this is a symptom, I think. 
I think it's my brain trying to like um, artificially mine good feelings mm-hmm. um, to release chemicals to make me feel better. Yes, just um, bringing you visions of the avatar of positivity <laughs> when your brain is in rest mode. Exactly. Yes. And also just like we're always like I'm always like touching his face and it's very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I've written 3,700 words about this. But um, because of this, I've also been like just obsessively watching YouTube videos about Ben mm. Schwartz, yeah. which means I watched his interview with James Corden that also he was sharing the stage with um, Anna Taylor-Joy. Anya, Anya. Tanner, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy. Mm-hmm. And in the past, um, you have said, as well as I think Coakley, that she uh, would... So I, I think you're thinking of Sam Martone. Sam Martone as well as Coakley. And yeah. then you agreed with it when... You agreed with it though, right? Has Coakley also said this? Because... Oh, wait. Was it you and Sam it Martone? It was me and Sam Martone independently had the same okay. idea. You and Sam Martone independently had the idea that if Ashley Shurganach and the Wolf, my book, which you should all buy, yes. um, were to be made into a movie, I, of course, knew off the bat I wanted Adam Driver to be the Wolf and you had suggested her for Ashley. Right. And I didn't get it until that particular interview. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, okay. But she also in that interview, I highly suggest watching this, Will. Mm-hmm. She talks about how when she was a little girl and she would sleep in her parents' bed, she did not like that when they fell asleep, they were like not there anymore. Yeah. And that she knew when she fell asleep, she wasn't going to the same place as them. So she was like, so I just decided to wait until they woke up. And so now she has insomnia in part because she trained herself to not sleep because she was so freaked out by the fact that her parents were going someplace that she wasn't. And I was like, that alone makes her perfect right like she like now i know she that she emotionally it. can get it yeah. yeah she won't have to do a lot of research or, or method acting to to play your the part you've created um i will do my best to tolerate uh james corden for a few minutes uh to in order to watch that, that i also video. don't i would like to say i also don't love james corden he does very little talking in this video it's actually mostly ben schwartz and Anya Taylor-Joy talking to each other. That's what I like to hear. So finally in old business uh, and in a, in a trans, sort of transition to the, the main topic, uh, in the movie that we have to discuss today, uh, Elizabeth Moss appears. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> we've, we've talked about Elizabeth Moss's work uh, many times on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to, uh, if while we're still in old business, read a headline Oh, please. Uh, from Vanity Fair. This uh-huh. came out uh, last month in between uh, last episode and this one. And the headline is, I wonder if you're aware of this at all. The Handmaid's Tale breaks the record for most Emmy losses in a season. <laughs> and then that's followed up with the series, which was shut out of all 21 categories in which it was nominated including Outstanding Lead Actress for Elizabeth Moss and Outstanding Drama Series. So this is... Oh, I'm so pleased by this. It it is pleasing. And also at the same time, isn't it, Lance Morissette, a little bit ironic? Because last time we talked about this show, we, we talked somewhat about how the most recent season is the best one. <laughs> yes, that is true. That is absolutely true. That, that does suck. But yeah. do you know what is good? Tell me. Because have you seen the Margaret Atwood news? This is also some good old business. So <laughs> you, you've 
You've stolen my thunder a little bit. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Pretend I didn't say it. We can just cut it out. No, we're not going to cut it out. But but (laughs) just imagine that we were just talking about the Handmaid's Tale thing. Yeah. And then I say, um, too bad for them, but at least we still have uh, Margaret Atwood to look up to as a paragon of virtue. (laughs) And feminism. Um, and feminism, and and now to just take a giant sip of my coffee while simultaneously googling Margaret Atwood and clicking the news, uh, you know, option. Yeah, when she so for those of you who don't know, um, who haven't been up up on the Twitter news, Margaret Atwood's been like retweeting some pretty turfy um, opinion articles that she didn't write. Mm-hmm. Um, basically. Uh, one of one of them, I, I I can't completely confirm this. The first one, I believe, was written. It was written from the voice of a trans woman, which I'll get to why I'm saying that in a second. Um, basically, saying that you know, you know, there should be activism, but we should be less in people's faces about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe that basically, which is a ridiculous thing, right? The idea that you would be less in your face when your life is literally on the line mm-hmm. every day because you could be murdered—that's like the problem, right? Um, and the reason I say from the voice of a trans woman is because Auden, my mentee, was like, yeah, so I keep seeing things that are saying that this person, they can't find any proof that this person exists outside of this opinion article. I'm pleasantly surprised that you brought this up because I, I was going to bring this up because I just today, I, I, prior to today, uh, I was vaguely aware of that because of something I saw in my Twitter timeline. Mm-hmm. And then today to prep for this, I was like, let me try to get dig that up and get to the bottom of it and actually be informed about this thing. And there are so many layers to this thing. Oh, even more it, than what I'm talking about. It's fascinating. I, I, I am morbidly fascinated. Oh, yeah. I'm by sure. the question of whether this author of this article actually exists. Mm-hmm. Or whether it is uh, someone posing as a person with that name and that identity. One of the layers is that someone created a brand new Twitter account. It seems that it was so new that it was a reaction to Margaret mm. Atwood sharing that article. Mm-hmm. And this person used multiple different photos from the Twitter account, this person does not exist. Are you aware of that Twitter account? It, no. It, the, this person doesn't exist algorithmically generates the faces of non-existent people by just combining, you know, different photos on the internet. So, um, ah! <laughs> so I had to make a squealy sound so people would know what my face was. <laughs> lots of people Googled the name of that author found this new Twitter account and then pointed to that as evidence that this person does not exist and and the author it must be someone else and then I found someone else on Twitter who said hey um here's the real Twitter account of the real I think her name is Jennifer Triff or something like that yeah uh, and it is not a brand new Twitter account. It's been around for a while. And mm-hmm. it is a person who is saying, yes, I wrote this article. And if you read her tweets, she seems to have politics consistent with the the article. Uh, but um, there are still people saying, 
you know, this is a puppet. This is like a false flag. If you Google this person, they have no, you know, digital footprint going back far enough to, you know, in the way that a person would. And then there are other people saying to them, yeah, no shit, dumbass. She's a trans woman. Yeah. Her name's different. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to find her digital footprint, maybe you have to know her dead name. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what to believe as yeah, I so, so often have to say and think in the yeah. age of the internet. Yeah. And I was going to say too, like, of course, clearly, especially if you're somebody who's changed your name or um, also like you don't have to have an internet presence. Um, I guess the thing that kills me, and I don't know if they have a British version of this, is that like- also just asterisk to what you just said. There are many ways to have a digital online presence against your will. You know? Yes. Like records of you are, are out there. So that's what I was going to bring up. So I have this friend, I mean, I guess he's not my friend anymore. My friend Steve from um, high school- um steve was the kind of dude who he would have a cell phone for six months and then he wouldn't for four months like he just like you had to see him regularly to see him otherwise you could lose touch with him um he didn't have he had like a zanga at one point and that was before i was even friends with him that he like updated three times total you know what i mean sure and i look him up occasionally and um the only thing that comes up is, like, if I Google his full name and, like, Harrisburg, is I can find, um, like, white page listings. Like, right. those sites that are, like, if you pay me $2, I'll tell you what this guy's address is. Right. Um, so, like, that's the thing that I'm, like, confused about. I mean, unless, of course, this woman, like this people are saying, just truly isn't even out yet. It's uh, confusing. And yeah. even if I spent the rest of the day researching it, I don't know <laughs> if I would come to a conclusion I was secure about. So I think we we uh, gave that topic it, its due. Or, yes, agree. Or more. So let's talk about a little film called The French Dispatch, uh, directed by Wes Anderson and written by Wes Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, who has sole screenplay credit. However, he is one of four people who have story by credit. The other three are Roman Coppola, Hugo Guinness, and Jason Schwartzman. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Liz, you saw this film uh, as, as early as you could, which was over a week ago now. Yeah. And I saw this film about as early as I could, which was last night. Mm -hmm. So the first question I want to address is, is why uh, were you able to see this movie sooner than uh, I was? And, and why are we doing this uh, at the last possible moment to meet the monthly schedule that I set up? And so we, oh, go ahead. I well, thought you actually one, wanted me to answer that question. <laughs> one, answer, one answer is that um, it's a, a supply chain issue, that the supply <laughs> chain has affected uh, the movie release. No, but the real answer is that um, you uh, and I. Here, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I am bitter about it. You are in a major metropolitan area. I am, and I have spent the past few years sort of deluding myself into thinking that I too live in a major metropolitan area, when in fact there's there is only one in the state I live in, and it's Phoenix, not Tucson, where I live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
This movie was playing last weekend in several locations around Phoenix. And uh, would I go up to Phoenix just to see this movie a week early? Absolutely, I would. It's not that long of a drive. It's yeah. Like, how, how far is it to Phoenix? It's between 90 minutes and two hours. Okay, yeah. Uh, however, uh, just to twist the knife a little bit more farther into, into my back, uh, the previous weekend, mm-hmm. uh, not last weekend, but the one before, I had to make that drive up to Phoenix. Uh, to pick up Dana at the airport. So it was just really unfortunate, inconvenient timing where how oh, wouldn't it have been so nice if I had that excuse to go up there. Then while we're up there, we see the movie. Uh, but no, instead, the following weekend comes around. And it's like, well, I was just up there a week ago. I don't want to drive two hours. Spend again. the time doing Four that again. Four hours round trip. Yeah, exactly. So I had to wait until it came to the loft cinema. We're recording this on Saturday the 30th. I saw it last night, Friday the 29th. We're releasing this on Halloween to meet the deadline for this coming out in October. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit about where you saw this movie and did you have to travel at all? I did, yeah. Uh, How much? I'm curious. So I I don't want you to feel – so don't feel – it definitely was easier for me, but I don't want you to think that it was, um, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump. And to be clear, just as a reminder, I grew up in New York City. Yes. so part of the reason I'm a spoiled brat is because (laughs) I'm an only child, but also part of the reason is that growing up in New York City, I became accustomed to what do you want? Oh, you can get it. And you can get it pretty easily no matter what you want and no matter what time of day or night it is or what time of year it is. Um, Just everything's at your fingertips as long as you can, you know, take the subway or something. So um, I am north, a little bit more north now than I used to be since we moved. And so I had to drive to Bethesda. Um, It was about a 35 or 40 minute drive. It would have been... um, it easily would have been an hour and a half if it was during rush hour, mm. um, which I bring up because if I had, um, you know, if it if if it hadn't been showing at seven where I could leave at like five forty five, basically, mm-hmm. um, I would have. And if it wasn't a pandemic, still, I would have hit probably if I had gone to like a six o'clock showing, I would have hit like so much traffic. Yeah. Um, the other options I had, by the way, were in DC, which is like terrible to drive into. You know, that would have easily been an hour drive. Mm-hmm. Or the Angelica Theater, which is in um, Falls Church, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe it's in Fairfax, technically. But um, that's like where I used to live when I was going to grad school. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely would have been an hour drive. So right. it's – yes. Did I have to drive two hours? No. Um, mm-hmm. Was I lucky that this one theater – it was called like the Landmark Cinema or something? Had you been there before ever? No. Okay. So and this was, was a special trip. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got there, I had to find a parking garage. Well, I, I looked up a parking garage ahead of time because they said that's where the best place to park was because mm-hmm. there was only street parking. Mm-hmm. I then found the parking garage, which by the way, by found the parking garage, I mean on Google maps, there was no address for this parking garage. I literally was clicking myself onto street view to find the entrance to this parking garage. Mm-hmm. Once I found the address of the parking garage, or once I found the parking garage, I then found the closest address, again, on street view, mm-hmm. and then um, put that into my GPS. And then I had to walk. This is like a really bougie 
area. And so it was like, you know, I'm walking past like a pottery barn and like an anthropology that already has Christmas trees up for some reason. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole street that was shut off because they had outdoor dining set up. Yeah. And so I walked across this like outdoor dining street down sort of an alley past a restaurant. I walked past a pop-up taco place where I got a single taco as a snack. Oh. Uh, it was very good. It was a vegetarian taco place. I got a black bean and egg taco. Mm. And I, like, I got a... I like egg on a taco. I love breakfast tacos. They are so good. Yeah. And then the theater itself actually had a booth outside where you would like talk to a man through a speaker. Mm-hmm. I already had my tickets purchased, of course. But then to get to the theater, I had to go inside, go down a set of stairs. Like I was... I was like yeah. really – and then I had no signal, so mm-hmm. I couldn't – I was going to text you a picture of myself. I couldn't even text Kenny to tell him I was there. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went into a theater that had nicer seats, like not old-timey seats. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't – the bottom didn't flip up, so like anytime somebody walked past, I had to like move. Okay. <laughs> like it was clearly that they had converted this theater to having these fancier seats. Oh, I see. And at first, I was the I was the first person in there, of course, and then um, a bunch more people showed up. Um, so it was about I would say maybe half full, which I was okay. surprised by. That was going to be my next question. So remind me, was it a Thursday or a Friday night? It was Thursday at seven o'clock. Okay, and uh, it was like a half full theater. And did you get the sense that that was um, like about as full as they would allow it to be? So Maryland right now, um, I don't know exactly what the rules was when I rules were when I saw it, but Maryland actually just lifted our mask mandate because we had Mm. such low new cases over seven days. Okay, Um, I don't necessarily think that's a good idea. Yeah, Um, Montgomery County also. Have I told you this? Montgomery County has a ninety nine point five percent vaccination rate for first shots of all the eligible people. I think you did tell me that. Why? Yeah, I can only imagine what it'll be um, once the kids can get it. Right next week, <laughs> kids are all right. Um, but yeah, so I'm not sure. I think that they probably would have let it be a full theater. I guess is my point. Yeah. So at the Loft Cinema, uh, where I saw this, uh, as I said yesterday was was opening day. We went to uh, a 7 p.m. screening. And uh, I think the loft, what, they, they made a certain decision recently, and I think they made it in anticipation of the, of the French Dispatch. Of the French Dispatch. And also they're showing Last Night in Soho. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both opening, same weekend. Um, I think they, they understand that that's going to attract uh, a lot of people, maybe more than they've been used to having in the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. And so they announced a, 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 about a week or a little more ago uh, we're going to start requiring proof of vaccination That's good. Um, for yeah. you to get into the movie. Uh, so uh, we did uh, that. And uh, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that um, despite that, I, I, I believe that they are still limiting how many tickets they will sell. I don't think mm-hmm. that they will sell every seat in the, in the theater. Um, so we saw it in their largest theater, which had uh, many more people in it than I am used to mm-hmm. since I started going back to the movies uh, uh, this past summer. Um, but still, it was not, you know, every seat filled. 
it was maybe somewhere between half and three quarters full. Um, and I'm so glad that I got to see it that way because uh, I, you, I think that uh, this, this has been said many times by many people about comedies mm-hmm. that they're best seen with an audience enjoying it and laughing at it. And I don't know if I would have appreciated fully how funny this movie is were it not for being around people and hearing them laugh and and seeing the parts that they thought were funny enough to laugh out loud at. And uh, it was really enjoyable for that fact. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I did. And I was actually going to say, and I can't, I don't know if I actually, I have my like terrible notes. Um, which I can barely read because I wrote them. I wrote them in the dark. In the dark, yeah. Um, but there was actually um, uh, most of the jokes that I laughed at. Other people weren't laughing at. Well, yeah, that was part <laughs> of the experience too. Was that when I laughed the hardest, it wasn't necessarily the the hardest general audience. Uh, laugh. I mean, there were times that I literally was like like burst out laughing and mm-hmm. no one else laughed and i was like oh this yeah. is weird uh-huh. but it was clearly also a joke you know what right. i mean like it wasn't just like but you know but yes i i would agree it was nice to see it with other people um and it was nice to see it the people that were there too i i told you a little bit of this off mic were all people they weren't like diehard wes anderson fans but they were all people that had some familiarity with his work from what i could tell or mostly did mm-hmm. um you know, there was a family that came in at the same time as me who uh, they said, I think I've been waiting two years to see this movie. Like, right. and then just were sort of listing facts. Um, and there were these really, really sweet three college boys that sort of nerdily shambled in to sit behind me that were like saying like young film critic statements yes. the whole time. Not the whole time. They didn't speak through the movie, but ahead of the movie. And I, I was very touched by them. The endearing um, film bro contingent. Yeah, they just were clearly, like, very excited mm-hmm. to be seeing the movie, but, like, trying to, like, tamp that down a little bit. Sure. God forbid men feel emotions. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it it was it was good. And also, I, I, I saved this fact. Mm. I saved this fact for this podcast, which Please. is, I think, a good thing. So they had trivia playing. Okay. It was kind of janky. Yeah. I want to say it was not as smooth as like an AMC experience. Okay. Where like literally they'd play like at one point they played a short film about this dude working out that was narrated by his dad. Cool. And I was like, what is happening? But then it just stopped. And then there was like nothing for like a minute. And then it was just like an ad for this like cat film festival. We had one of those as well. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the fact that I saved, which maybe, you know, mm. which let me make sure I read it. Which was that when this film debuted, it had a nine-minute standing ovation at Cannes? The Cannes Film Festival. At the Cannes Film Festival? Speaking of trivia, have you looked at the trivia on IMDb for this movie? Mm -mm. Okay, well, I was not going to bring this up, but since (laughs) you brought that up, I need to draw your attention to this very bitterly written uh, trivia fact on IMDb. The I'm going to just read this verbatim. Please. Uh, the the quote-unquote uh, nine-minute ovation was not a nine minutes, parentheses, actually eight plus. Ovation over the movie itself, dash, dash, 
Instead, during those eight plus minutes, the actors and director were doing things on stage, which the camera <laughs> followed and comma. The camera also then focused on each of the many actors individually, prompting and rather requiring new and individual applause and <laughs> other things happening on stage at which new ovation occurred. So a bit misleading that there was an eight plus minute ovation over the film itself. That as I'm written so glad. was I'm approved so glad you read me by that. IMDB to be published in their trivia section. But the, the, this person makes a good point. Like, yeah, is, no, for sure. That's misleading. misleading. It's, but also, uh, you know, I could I could punch this up a little bit as an editor. I also, I guess I brought it up because it just felt like such a weird fucking fact to have before the movie. Like, the first time people saw this movie, they fucking loved it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you're trying to hype me up, dude? I'm here at the opening showing. <laughs> I have my own page of notes, but I didn't take it in the theater. I took them. Because you're smart. This morning, um, just so uh, I would uh, hopefully not forget uh, something that I consider important. Um, like, uh, here's an example. Uh, one of the first things uh, you see when any movie starts mm -hmm. uh, is the uh, different studios and production companies, their logos. First one you see, do you know what it is? In the, in 2021, it, it's called Searchlight Pictures. Yes, it's not Fox Searchlight it, any right. longer. It used to be called Fox Searchlight. And since uh, Disney acquired Fox, uh, those movies are just called Searchlight Pictures now. And that gives us a much more concisely written trivia fact on the IMDb page. My favorite of what I read here today, and I think you will appreciate this. Wes Anderson's first movie for Disney since The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Ah, okay, yes. You remember our previous discussions about you know, which movies of his were Touchstone pictures mm -hmm. and how Touchstone was a Disney sort of yes. label. And then Life Aquatic tanked. And then uh, uh, <laughs> so so now it's sort of come full circle in an interesting way, whether he meant to or not. He, he made a movie for Disney again. Next, you see this movie starts with a table of contents. Yes. And one of the first things that I noticed shortly thereafter was that this film seems like it must be a challenge to project. Uh-huh. And I believe I know this for a fact because I believe I saw this movie projected poorly is too strong a word, but I would say in a subpar manner. Inadequately. Yes. And I and I perceived this because there are many subtitles in this movie. And one of the fun things is that there's a wide variety of places where the subtitles will appear on the screen. Mm -hmm. However, sometimes there are words to be read at the very bottom of the screen. And uh, for, for us in this audience, those uh, words were cut off, I would say maybe, I don't know, 40, 30 to 40% at the bottom, just enough so that you could still make out what those words were. But yeah. it was clear that you were not getting 100% of the the frame. How big was your screen as a question? Um, I know it was the biggest place at the loft, but how how big of a screen are we talking? I would say standard issue. Okay. You know, big enough 
uh, what you know, not not exceptionally big. Uh, of- yeah, I w- I think my screen. I I agree with you about the um sizing ish sizing pr- problem that you could have. Mine was perfectly projected, oh. so that was not a problem. Good for you. I'm happy. Um, for you. but I also was on a smaller screen, mm. which. I was like, I think the smallest sort of screen that can be a movie screen that isn't like at some sort of 10 person theater or something. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and like, I think Midtown Cinema in Harrisburg, probably they have really small theater, like one of their theaters, I think only seats like 30 people. And I'm sure that that screen's a lot smaller, but, um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, that was a weird, we'll talk more about that. But yeah, I was like, I was sort of like, oh, I was kind of hoping the screen would be a little bit bigger, but. Mm Mm-hmm. So, all right, I've been dominating the conversation with the start of of my notes. So um, just general impressions. uh, I would just want to get it out. Yeah, that's Uh, what I want to say. Did you like it? The movie is really good, and I liked it a lot. Um, How about you? I also really liked it. Good. I said um, my sort of first general impression, the thing I said to Kenny when I got out of it was, this movie, Wes Anderson- Wes Anderson this movie more than he's ever Wes Anderson a movie before. Yes, that- it was. And then the other word I want to use is that I keep saying to you before you saw it was dense. Dense is definitely uh, yeah a word to describe it. I would say um, kinetic, uh, mm-hmm. almost frantic. I I was thinking frenetic, and then frenetic. I didn't actually know if that was the right word. No, I think that that's also a good word for it. Um, I saw this movie, uh, yes. uh, I'm very grateful to have seen this movie with several, uh, friends. Uh, yeah, so jealous. And I mean, also always jealous that you just get to see the people you live near. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wish we could count you among them. Uh, but, uh, this, you know, we'll make do with this, uh, for now. Uh, one, one of, uh, our, our friends, you know, remarked, uh, you know, feel like I've got to see it again. Um, cause there's a lot, uh, that I probably missed and she was remarking on the, the density of, you know, how much is in many of the shots. And, and I remarked, uh, that in addition to that, uh, you know, I only have so much attention that I can devote yes. at any given moment and I, I can't. devote perfect maximum attention to both what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. And so beyond Mm -hmm. just how visually dense the shots can be, also much of the dialogue is not really dialogue at all. It's it's narration and uh, it moves very quickly. And it, you know, uh, a, a huge monologue can be, you know, sort of spoken at you at a really quick pace while also the character is moving through this extremely long tracking shot. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, I can either try to pick up on every nuance of what they're saying and every little joke and clever bit of wordplay, or I can pick up on all the details that are actually on the screen Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm going to do both at once. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, yeah, unfortunately for better or for worse, we have to, we have to talk about our first impression of this movie. We have to talk about it after having seen it only once. I am. Um, I also want to, we can do this now or later. 
Yeah. Let me, because I feel like you probably have a shape for this episode in your head, maybe. Sort of. I my um, notes are a little bit too disparate for a grander shape. I I um I want to talk about, of course, the actual like acts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But at some point, either now or later, I would like us to just sort of try to, off the top of our head, list every trope that's in this movie that has been in another movie. Because I know part of what we talked about were like. The patterns that we saw yeah. when we were doing the main season of the West End season. And I, the whole time I was watching it, it started, it wasn't just like, oh, text on the screen. There was like the other really, I'll give one example, which is Wes Anderson loves fucking motorbikes. Mm-hmm. Motorbike yeah. in this movie too. Right. He fit one in, right? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I will use this opportunity to say one of the things I was going to say is that if I were in of like a film class, you know, I could write an entire paper just about why some shots are in color and yes. which which parts are in black and white and which moments color appears suddenly. And then in addition to that, I could probably write a separate second equally long paper just about the aspect ratios and when yeah. they change and, and why they change. And um, we've talked about aspect ratios in past episodes of this podcast, especially in Grand Budapest Hotel. So yeah. that fits into your tropes conversation. Um, I have a couple of more notes that fit into that category nicely. Do you have another one you want to shout out? Can I just can I just like um, speed list a couple? Yeah, go for it. There's stop frame animation for like half of a second. Mm. <laughs> there when like um some like columns are crumbling. Yeah. Um, there's a fucking life aquatic style plane, mm, uh, which, I, yeah. Are which you referring saw, to the sort of bisection of the, yes. yeah. When I saw that, I was like, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was so, I was so jazzed on that fucking plane. Yeah, totally. Um, there's, um, an inappropriate relationship between a, a young person and an adult. Mm-hmm. There's, um, I mentioned the motorbike. You mentioned the aspect ratios. Well, now I feel like I can't think of any off the top. Of well, my head. let me let me help you. So there are um, miniatures, and there's and, miniatures, and there's animation, and there's a blend of live mm-hmm. action and animation. There's also um, I I wrote down uh, is Wes Anderson obsessed with electrocution? Yes, yes. Two different people are electrocuted in this movie. <laughs> one to death. It, mm-hmm. And it, it, it is, uh, I would say, remarkably similar to uh, when the the boy of, of Moonrise Kingdom is, is struck by lightning. And that yes, film. it is. There's a uh, car chases. Yep. And then, um, and then here's the here's the much grander one that I wanted to point out. It's not yes. the grandest thing in my notes, but it's grander than say electrocution or text on the screen. Mm-hmm. And that is there's a there's a theme. It's not even one of the bigger themes in this movie. It's specific to one character and and no one character, you know, carries more than like 30% of this movie on their backs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's an uh, not only an ensemble but it's also an anthology. Yeah. But uh the character is the kid of Gigi and the the theme um, which is not in all of his movies, but what I realized is I might argue 
that it's in his best movies or mm-hmm. or my favorite of his movies. And mm-hmm. the way I want to frame that theme is this kid sure came out weird. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, correct. And isn't this a, <laughs> isn't this a very special child? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is done in such a funny manner in this movie uh, with the uh, idea of Gigi, the boy who is raised by the police. <laughs> and so his first words are in Morse code and his first drawings are composite sketches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that, that special child theme is, uh, you know, more central to Moonrise Kingdom, to Fantastic Mr. Fox, to Rushmore, obviously, and even in a in a sort of skewed but still true way of Royal Tenenbaums, which is sort of about like, what if, you know, what happens when the special kids grow up? Like, what are mm-hmm. those special kids like as adults? Um, and, uh, I, 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 am really, uh, uh, drawn to that in a way that me might too. say as much about me as it, as it does about, uh, Wes Anderson. Yeah. It definitely says something about me, a formerly gifted kid that got to sleep in her gifted classroom for mm-hmm. hours on end in high school. Yeah. Um, more like the smug text, uh, talented <laughs> and gifted, uh, yeah. special little children. A G-I-E-P. Um, I mentioned the animation. This is a very minor note. I just, yeah, I just really like the part of this movie that is a cartoon that is just, I do too. That is an action sequence that would probably be too expensive and too difficult to make, and so they made a cartoon of it, and it looks uh, great. Yeah, um, I love the the style. I love the way that it sort of looks like a, a New Yorker cover come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, can I talk about a uh, um, a something that I feel like he's done in other movies, but not nearly as deeply as this movie. Okay, which is that this movie is um very much into diving into like Matryoshka doll, um, bracketed stories. The way and then that pulling the, back out the way that the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, in a way where you can almost forget about parts of it if you haven't yeah. seen it recently it is uh, a, a person reading a novel the you know novelist sort of introducing it then the the jude law younger version of the novelist who mm-hmm. hears the story from f murray abraham whose story is about a younger himself there that this happens in that movie but it happens like um because so already we have that happen in the f- sense that we have the new we have the the um literary magazine staff and then we have the different acts right. let's say the different stories that are going to be in the magazine but then within those stories we also sometimes more than once will sort of like zoom in on like a previous sort of flashback right. where we end up getting like a sort of brackets upon brackets on brackets and then you have to like pull out one by one yeah um in a way that like when I said this is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson has ever Wes Anderson. Right. This is what I mean. It's like it's not just that he's doing it as the overarch of the story. It's like right. there are these sort of like teardrops almost falling down if you were to sort of plot the story. Right. 
Uh, I am such, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again now. I'm such a sucker for that kind of thing. Yes. One of my favorite books is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yes. Um, and uh, that leads me to uh, a question, maybe sort of a quibble that I have with this movie, mm-hmm. which is why is there no such framing device for telling story number two, Francis McDormand's story. Mm. And by that, I mean, in contrast to stories one and three, Tilda Swinton is giving a lecture Mm -hmm. and Jeffrey Wright is on a talk show. Yes. But Francis McDormand were just kind of with her for the story. And there are layers within that. There's Mm -hmm. a part where Timothy Chalamet takes over the narration. And Mm -hmm. there's the part within that where we see a scene from a play Mm-hmm. Um, bo- which is, oh, that's another trope. A play in this fucking movie. It, it is very reminiscent of, of uh, Max Fisher's plays in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was uh, I came out of it wondering um, why there wasn't the same sort of frame for context around uh, Francis McDormand's story. And maybe there's something quick or subtle in there that that we missed that yeah. i that i missed but um as, assuming it isn't in there uh, for me to miss i just want you know it can be done with one line of narration or something like that something that says there is no record of this author telling this story or any story in a public setting because this writer of the three or four of them is the most reclusive. Yeah. And so we have nothing to show you that would be like a presentation of, yeah. of this story. I don't know I think, how you do that in a cinematic way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, th- that's just a little something I I wanted. Yeah. And I think that that story too... Um, I think maybe the justification is that, like, it's a really grassroots story. And so the idea is that, like, she's sort of reporting it directly. And there's sort of, there's a runner uh, in that story about whether or not she will maintain journalistic neutrality and also whether that exists. Yes. And so, yeah, there is, there's good reason why. There shouldn't be the public presentation for a framing device. But it's weird to have two out of three. Have them all be different. Have it be like that game set. They all have to be all different or all the same. Yeah, that's that's the thing I'm thinking. And I just want sort of like a direct acknowledgement of like, there's a reason why this one is different from the others. Can I say too, this was my least favorite one. This was Dana's favorite. Dana's, can I tell you? Can I tell you why? Dana, can I tell you why? What Dana said? Yes. Which is that she just uh, loves to watch both Tim- Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand. I and, do too. I just don't like them being that close. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I am in the middle. It's not. It's not my favorite, but also I don't object to it at all. I guess, like, I was telling Kenny about this, and I said, I think this is something Will and I are going to disagree about, not in a, like, you and I fighting over it sort of way, but just like a, you understand me and I understand you, Mm -hmm. which is that, like, there's so much suspension of disbelief in Wes Anderson. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm I'm willing to like I'm even willing to sort of you know suspend my hatred of the cops for this like old time yeah. police story right? right like I'm willing to do that mm-hmm. um but I just I cannot get on board with Francis McDormand's character sleeping with Timothy Chalamet's character and I'm very glad that they didn't show it you know what I mean like I think they did it as tastefully as they could. I think there's they could also have done question- it slightly more tastefully, but I think that one of the strengths of this movie is the ways in which it is sometimes tasteless and mean. <laughs> sure. I guess, I guess I just like, I would have, I almost would have preferred if they had just like made out or something, mm. but she is like so much older than him. And I think the idea is like, that Timothy Chalamet is maybe like a I, is the idea that he's like a college student, like a, in a college dormitory, like he's like nineteen or something like that. I would put him at seventeen. I don't recall. See, that's worse. <laughs> I don't recall if they ever say explicitly what his age is. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But I sort of got it in my head that he was seventeen or eighteen, and I think that f- for one thing. Uh, the part of the context for justifying this as a cho- mm-hmm. as a choice mm-hmm. is that it's very European. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. And also part of the context that I bring to it to try and justify this is that it is supposed to be a love letter to this type of journalism in a way that does not well that that does and doesn't glorify it that yeah. that celebrates it but also includes that it's in in some instances debaucherous like mm-hmm. I, I mean not to mention the fact that like also that's kind of a part of the previous story Til, yes. Til oh the, no, for sure. Tilda Swinton has this aside about Benicio del Toro's character trying to rape her. She doesn't say rape; she yes. says fuck. And then, uh, and then later, she says to the editor, "We were lovers." Mm-hmm. So there's multiple what? stories about the journalists uh, sleeping with the the subjects that they're writing about, which to me is just kind of. Uh, uh, you know, part of it's 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 like a part of the mold that you yeah. that you, uh, you know, it's kind of making light of it in a way, and it's also kind of like, don't look away from this. Like this is this is a part. Like historically, this has been a part of it. Yeah, and I the other sort of thing I'm willing to suspend my disbelief on is actually that like. I had Kenny was like Kenny made me make a promise that I would look up her name so I say it correctly. Leia Sado. Okay. So that Leia Sado's character, like I'm willing to suspend my disbelief that there's this clearly inappropriate relationship between like a prisoner and a a prison guard, even yeah. though we know in real life that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to, for the sake of this movie, be like, oh, this is a weird, funny movie, and this is a weird, funny prison, and this is weird art therapy, and. Uh, she's, you know, they're, because they're both adults. I guess that's the thing. I'm willing to like, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for weird, goofy, um, adults Mm -hmm. that are maybe in positions of power that are, would in normal life be completely inappropriate and a huge problem and 
hopefully illegal. Right. And I just, I can't do it with, with a kid. Um, yeah. And because then, especially, and this is the other thing I wanted to bring up, is let's say they are supposed to be 17. And, you know, we know in real life that Timothy Chalamet now is like 26. So he was like 24 or 23 when they filmed this. And the his girlfriend, that's his age-appropriate girlfriend, I looked up as 29, which I never would have guessed. You, Did you look that up no, too? No, I had no idea. Um, so I feel less weird about this now, but when I was watching it and suddenly they are like making out and she's topless or whatever, I was like, I was like, I don't want to be seeing this. Like, if these are supposed to be teenagers, I don't want to be seeing them completely full frontal naked making out with each other, especially considering this weird, <laughs> this weird thing with Frances McDormand. Yeah. And if they had just made the, made it clear that they were in college, I think I would feel less weird about it. And I did also feel less weird when I learned that woman was 29. Right. Well, so a couple <laughs> of things. And one is that the relationship between Chalamet and McDormand, to be clear, I think this is super clear already, but I just want to say it to be uh, uh, extra certain that, that it's clear is that I think it is supposed to be weird and gross and uncomfortable. So Oh yeah, for sure. So it's it's not like you, you know, you're not the, rooting for it's them. It's not like the movie thinks isn't this great and you thought it was <laughs> gross. Like in a way you are responding to it the way it you were intended to respond. You just you you, you um feel that I way. Just can't, you feel that way can't. so strongly that you object to it. I just can't then also think the jokes are funny for the most part. Sure. I think that's the that's the line for me. Right. Is like it's so much that I then can't laugh along with it. But also I just want to say to the extent that it is ambiguous what their age is and whether they're in college or something earlier than that, I I think that that is also sort of baked into the cake because in this <laughs> in this story it is supposed to be ambiguous and confusing what is going on. Like yes, the, that's true. The whole, you know, young people versus the elders revolution, it, it is deliberately completely unclear what they're fighting over and what the terms are. Aren't they fighting to try to get the women and the, the girls in the boys' dorms? It, I think it's the other way around. The or boys the boys in the, the girls', girls dorms. dorms, yeah. So to, to cohabitate a little bit during the day. Right. But the, the, that is, I think, the, the, the simple version that we get by way of introduction. But mm. it's called Revisions to a Manifesto. And, and like... It, my point is it's designed this way on purpose to be ambiguous and confusing because it is about what it is actually like to be in the midst of that experience, yeah. which is that it is, it's very easy to lose sight of what you're fighting for. And often everyone is disagreeing on what that is. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how did, you know, why and how did we get to this point in the first place? But that is by no means enough to stop or even pause the process that you're in the middle of um, it, it because it has a, a life of its own. And so it, it's about it's revisions on a manifesto because it's about like starting something when you don't fully know the purpose or your intentions mm -hmm. and then 
figuring it out as you go and how messy that is, um, which I don't know, I it, it, it makes it sort of hard to follow and hard to be like invested in, in the way that I was like really invested in the third story in particular, yeah. which is my favorite. My favorite too. But also I, don't, I think it's very savvy. Uh, um, I do want to say there is one joke that is associated with that storyline that I have a problem with specifically okay. that um, I thought was really funny, but also I thought was extremely Wes Anderson writing. Mm-hmm. Like almost like I could have written that if I was parodying Wes Anderson, right. which is when they're sitting in bed the next morning and she's like typing her story or whatever and someone knocks on the door and she goes and answers it and comes back. And the dial I I clearly I don't remember the dialogue exactly, but the dialogue is something like he says, Who was that? And she says, It was your mother. And he said, What? What did you tell her? And he said, She says, I, t- I told her you were here. And he said, Why did you do that? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. She's like, Well, I'm not. And then she says, Well, I'm not going to lie. She says, like, I don't lie. I don't lie. That's yeah. what she says. <laughs> um, and the way that he uh, reacts when she says, uh, it was his mother at the door. First, yeah. at first, he very dismissively goes, "My mother," and then yeah. he and then he takes that <laughs> second to think about it, and then he appalled goes, "My That's mother." Right. <laughs> it's like, isn't it so like Wes Anderson? It's just a very, like... it, it's a very funny scene. Yeah, um, it's also I think in that scene that there is a line that I want to talk about, not yeah. not because it's funny. But um, there, there's a couple of questions that I have about this movie that are, in one way or another, really interesting and, and, and sort of baffling to, to me. I, I remember it was this scene because I think what you're seeing is the two of them, Chalmay and McDormand in bed. Mm-hmm. And there is McDormand's voiceover narration where she's talking about the state of the revolution at this Mm -hmm. moment she probably just said the date because that's something she does while while we're tracking the time to this story and i wish i had the exact words of the quote i looked up the quotes page on imdb it's just a few things from the trailer this movie hasn't been out long enough um but uh i'm just gonna butcher this by trying to paraphrase it from memory she says in her voiceover something like everything is different right now. Nobody knows when it is going to go back to normal, if it will go back to normal at all, or indeed what normal is going to look like if and when this is all over. Mm. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And I just got chills and goosebumps, and I looked at Dana, and Dana uh, looked at me, and uh, I. My question is, holy shit! Like, is that an accident or what? Yeah. Wow. Because that that is a, a line that could have been written by accident. Mm-hmm. about what it is supposed to be literally about in the context yeah. of the film. And this movie was supposed to come out quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. But, about a year. But also, 
notably, I think it's not a line that is spoken Mm -hmm. by someone we see on camera. It's voiceover, which is much easier to add later in Mm -hmm. the process um, than, you know, an actual shot of somebody saying something. So it's so clear, obvious, and so easy to draw the parallel of like, that just, that just articulates what we've all been thinking and feeling about the pandemic and, Mm -hmm. and what we were feeling, especially like a year to like 15 months ago. When this this movie was supposed to come out. Yeah. So what happened? Like what, like what is the, is the explanation that that, is so poignant because it was written that way. It was written yeah. in that context. Or is it just this like miraculous coincidence that this that this was written before the 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 context that makes it so poignant mm-hmm. seeing it today? Yeah, that's incredible. I can I bring up another quote that I think is gonna be the quote that people are gonna get like tattoos of? Yeah, go for it. Can can you guess? Well, I know what I think the sort of fulcrum of the movie is. Which is Bill Murray saying, uh, make it sound like you intended to write it that way. I, I can't remember the the exact quote. Try to make it head. sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. Um, yes. That is sort of like the catchphrase of the movie. That's what I think people are going to get. Tat- I think people are going to get tattoos of Bill Murray with that underneath it. To be clear, I was referring to something else when I said the fulcrum, but that you're you're totally right. That 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 as a sort of, you know. And I do actually really like that quote. Yeah, it's good. I by by which I mean I think I'm going to not like it eventually because it's going to be overused. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's. But right now. I love it. <laughs> it has that way of being like immediately you recognize how how pithy this is. Yeah. And it like it will have its power for a limited amount of time. Yes. Uh, before we get to the scene that I think is the the fulcrum uh my other my other uh, I used the word baffling uh mm-hmm. a moment ago. Yes. So my other question and I want to try to use this as a transition into um, talking about the cast, which can get me to the fulcrum. I want to talk about small parts. Yes. This movie has a ton of people. Uh-huh. And some of them are in disproportionately small roles. Yeah. And in some cases, you can explain that away very easily. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, you can't. And that's mainly what I want to talk about. So, for for example, Jason Schwartzman is in like two scenes. He has like maybe two or three lines. You yeah. can explain that away. He helped write the movie. It's a cameo. He did the same thing in Grand Budapest. We've he just seen, got to hang out, before. basically. He's one of the gang, right? Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Moss has a very small part in this movie. However, I I... Don't think that I would like to see her in a bigger role. And <laughs> yeah, I th- that's fine. And I think that for 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 the small amount that she gets to do in the movie, mm-hmm. she's perfect in it. Yeah, for sure. I, it, it seems kind. We of, know from Madman she's good in an old timey skirt. It seems kind of silly to say about a role so small, 
but she's she's perfect for it. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, there is such a thing as like stunt casting. And Remind me what that is again. I, I feel like you've literally explained this to me on the podcast. I have a story about hanging out with my roommate and my roommate's friend who would come around a lot and talking about what was then the new season of Arrested Development. And mm-hmm. the, the friend was like a media arts major. And he complained that at the beginning of that season, there's a flashback where young Lucille and young George Sr. are played by Kristen Wiig and Seth Rogen. And he right. and he called it typecasting. And he said, I don't like typecasting. Right. And the reason this is a story for me is because at that time, I could not remember the term stunt casting. I was like, right. no, it's not typecasting. It's If anything, <laughs> it's against type. Seth Rogen has a type and yeah. it's lazy stoner dude. Yeah. That has nothing to do with George Sr.'s character. So <laughs> what are you talking about? It's typecasting. Yeah. No, actually, what I couldn't remember at the time is that it is an example of stunt casting. It's right. like, oh, here's this person you recognize. Aren't you surprised to see them in this, in this sort role. of insignificant role? Yeah. So where that I, I, I think is done very well, or at least they're not, if it's not stunt casting, at least it's like, oh, this small, small part is enhanced by this person who is overqualified yes. being in that part. And the roles yeah. I'm referring to in this movie are the roles of the two uncles of Adrian Brody's character. Yes. <laughs> who are played by Henry Winkler and Bob Balaban. Yes. And it's so funny. They don't speak. It's, their faces are so funny. They don't speak very much. Those yes. are small parts. But those parts are made much, much funnier by the fact that they're played by Henry Winkler and Bob Balaban. Can I tell you a, a small fact about Henry Winkler really quick? Please. Henry Winkler was the keynote speaker at my company's conference this year for some reason. Oh. He is also at Coming to George Mason oh. like this week cool. for some reason because I keep getting ads about it. So like I could have very – I didn't actually watch him when he did the keynote because I was like I have to do work. Fair enough. Um, and I'm not going to go see him at George Mason. But I was very close – I could have been very close to Henry Winkler two times in the past six months. Mm-hmm. That's that, – and, and uh, lucky you for that. Yeah, because he rules. So uh, next, um, second to last – uh, I want to bring up uh, Saoirse Ronan has a very small part in this movie. Very small. I thought it was going to be bigger, honestly. She was one of the ones I thought was going to be more prominent. Um, she just has one scene where she has dialogue. She kills it. Mm-hmm. But it is enough to make you go, can you justify getting Saoirse Ronan to do this? It's a little strange. <laughs> I also, I was telling Sarah that um, I have only seen movies with Timothy Chalamet that also have Saoirse Ronan in them. You need to see Dune and you need to see it in a hurry. Oh, no. Well, Ken- so Kenny is going to see it tomorrow in theaters. You can watch it at home. And so I'm I'm going to watch it at home. I don't know when, but. Good. Um, he will have the better experience, but you will both see a very good movie. Finally, this this is the part that, that truly baffles me. Okay. I cannot come up with an explanation. Mm-hmm. For why Christoph Waltz plays the part that he plays in this movie. Who do, who does Christoph Waltz play? He plays the guy who looks like shit, 
who Timothy Chalamet's parents want to set up with Francis McDormand. That's right. <laughs> he does almost nothing in this movie. Yes. And he is one of the best people you can put in your movie. Yes. And I have been racking my brain going, okay, there. it's possible that there is an explanation that we will never know because it is private and behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And we could only hope to learn it from like an interview with mm-hmm. either Waltz or Wes Anderson. And it's and it, and the explanation is he happened to be there by mm-hmm. coincidence. Yeah, so they on just the like day. or they just or he could only film for four hours, and so they they did it as they were, fast as they could, and they were desperate to work with each other, yes, just as soon as possible. That could explain it. The only other explanation I can think of is that they were going for a joke that. If they were going for it, I don't think it landed, Mm -hmm. which is a stunt casting kind of joke where the audience gets to see this person that they recognize. So they think this will be a character of significance. And then you abruptly slam the door on that character and they're never seen again. Because, yeah, actually, I think that's what it is. Because what happens right after that is Francis McDormand sleeps with Timothy Chalamet. But it is a little bit too protracted, in my opinion. I agree. I don't don't think that they did it. I agree that it doesn't land. The punchline doesn't land because it, it just happens a little bit too slowly. Which is yeah. weird to say about this movie because this movie moves <laughs> at such a clip. Exactly. Oh, God. No, what what I mean is when you describe the possibilities for why that's happening, it's it's very – and again, this is a very Wes Anderson thing because of like Bill Murray and Darjeeling Limited. Right. Right? Yes. Perfect example. Thank you. Yes. I, I, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so when you describe it that way, now I understand why it's happening – yeah. Um, especially with the way that they he does because he the other thing he does in this oh what is the name for that what is the name for this Pan- with the camera panning yeah but what remember how we talk oh, do, about this do you with mean West- a, you mean a whip pan the way it yes moves quickly? yeah <laughs> um they do a whip pan to Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet leaving which they often do that for the sake of jokes I think it's truer to say they might do a whip pan to Chalamet and the gas mask. Yes. And then Frances McDormand has to like get up, leave the she, room. She like shuffles over. And yeah. then she reappears in her gas mask and then they leave. Yes. Uh, so, Too many beats. Yeah. Again, it's sort of. And then we. Do- if it had cut to if it had cut to her surprisingly leaving instead of like showing her leaving, I think it would have. I think in order for better. the joke to land, you need to literally slam the door on Christoph Waltz's face. Yes. Yes. And then smash <laughs> cut to. Uh, you know, Chalamet and McDormand in bed together. Something like that. Yes. Um, okay, who did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about Tony Revolo. Revi- Revi- Revolio. Rev- Revolio? Rev- Fuck, I can never say this hang guy's on, name. Hang on, I got the cast list. Revolari. Revolori. 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 Shit. That's how it looks. I'm looking at it yes. now. It looks like Revolori. Um... Because he plays a young Benicio del Toro yep. and has no lines. Correct. And I was like, ah, I felt so weird and bad about that for some reason. 
I understand why it's happening within the scope of the story, but again, and we always talk about race with Wes Anderson, yeah. and by we I mean me, and then you, you of course participate, but I'm usually the I took that burden on. Thank you. And um, like it just you know there's not that many characters of color. We have one we which we haven't talked about yet, but I know we will soon. Character of color that is perfect. Two in fact. Um, yes, um, but to have um. To have Tony Revelori be here and just not have a speaking role is like, I guess it would bother me less if, if he had done this with two characters that were white. Oh, yeah. Totally understandable. You make a great point. I didn't think of this myself because the problematic thing that you are talking about was overshadowed by one of my favorite shots in the movie. Oh, yes. Which is to say, I think that it's beautifully done. It's just like, come on, man. I just, again, like I said, I used the phrase before, I'm such a sucker for this kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I'm just in the bag for the the style, the breaking the fourth wall stylistic choice that is made in one of my favorite shots in the movie when they show the passage of 10 years by having a close up of Tony Revolori. And then Benicio del Toro enters the same shot behind yes. him. Revelori yes. gets up. Benicio and he like sits touches down. his shoulders. I feel yes, like yes. Before Revelori exit, he like puts a hand on Benicio's shoulder and then walks out of frame. And then it yeah, says, I loved that. That was beautiful. Oh, it, it like it is arguably better than a lot of the speaking roles in the movie or lines of dialogue in the movie. <laughs> yeah. That's how good it is. That's how much I, I uh, just like vibed on that shot. Um, did you have a second person you wanted to talk and about? I, yes. The person that I mentioned to you, and maybe you can tell me, no, this wasn't her and you were just wrong, but I'm so certain Kara Hayward was in that first act. Uh, yeah. And I looked for her, didn't see her where you must have seen her. Then looked up the credits on IMDb. This credits page is enormous, Liz. It really. Oh my god! It, I know. Did they did they fill it out yet? Because when I looked, it wasn't enormous yet. It looks. But but the fucking credits. I'm looking at uh, yeah the credits as you see them in the movie are are something wild, and then I'm looking at them on IMDb and it it looks comprehensive to me, Liz. <laughs> Good because like it was not last. All week. the students and all the prisoners. And I searched control F. Control F. Kara Hayward, and I, uh, I don't think she's the person who I thought was in it was during the scene where they've gotten to the art. They've snuck everybody into the prison, Mm -hmm. and so there are all of these like art collector bougie non prisoner people. Um, there is a woman with curly dark hair mm-hmm. who is standing very close to the center of the action, um, sort of as the fighting, not the fighting, but the sort of tension is building before the fight. Yeah. And she's in a, she's in the shots for, you know, a handful of seconds, but she's very visible because she is sort of the front, she is whoever she is. They picked her to be front and center as a background person, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I swear to God it is her. Um and if so, I think that's so interesting. I mean, maybe it's not because again, we you know you're telling me IMDb is pretty updated now, so it seems like maybe it's not. But if it's not, it fucking looks like her. Let me tell you, whoever this person was, I totally didn't notice them. And if it is Kara Hay- Haywood, Hayward, 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 I think. Hayward, then she must be uncredited because yeah. she's she's not here. 
uh, on IMDb. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry to to disappoint you. No, that's totally... You have not disappointed me, my love. You're fine. <laughs> I'm sorry that reality in this case may have disappointed you. And yes, I, I mean, I think this is just one of those things where when it comes out and I can take a screenshot of it, I'll be like, do mm-hmm. you see why I thought this was her? You know what I mean? Yeah, and you'll be I, like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to that day. <laughs> um, speaking of the cast... Yes. Uh, if I, It's been a while since we've done an episode of Wes And, but I, I seem yes. to recall... That for each movie, uh, we picked an MVP uh, from the cast. I know who my MVP is. Do you know who yours Mm -hmm. is? Yeah. Go for it. Do we want to say it on three? Uh, (laughs) Will's Will's like, no, I do not. Here's what I want to say on three. (laughs) Okay. I want to say what I think yours is. Okay. So you say yours and I say what I think you're going to say. Okay. One, two, Two, three. three. Jeffrey Leia Wright. Sidhu. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is mine as well. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, so, okay, so we're on the same page. But you're right, Leia Sadeau, oh my God. <laughs> I thought Leia Sadeau, um is like a runner-up for me for she's, the MVP. She's very high up there. Her, and I, I love her part. that you being you, she might take the top spot. I am, um, yeah, so... Well, I mean, let's just talk about the first act a little bit, because I think that you and I are going to have a lot to say about the third act. And I feel like we haven't really talked about the first act, Um, which is I love I thought that this was a great I think that it's they put it in the right place. I think that they ordered these acts correctly. Sure. And I felt like this, you know, clearly the little like Owen Wilson little montage is very funny. And I think it sort of is a good um, preamble. Right. It's, It's extremely funny. It's extremely funny. Um, Owen Wilson's fucking hilarious. Yes. Um, and the you know we get to see these like beautiful sets, um, or whatever that are built. Um, the first act I thought re- the first act is my second favorite of the three, and um, I really loved. I I just felt like it. There were a lot of turns in it that I w- wasn't expecting. So like that's really one of the first times that you get the black and white to color switch. Right. And it's shocking the first time, and mm-hmm. then you sort of get used to it. But in a uh, you know whatever. But it's very very well executed that first time. Oh yeah. Um. When you don't know that Leia Sadow's character is the prison guard, that is also like shocking. So like they're. I didn't um, really have that experience because you can easily get that information from the trailer for this movie. Oh, I guess I didn't realize. Um, I didn't like put it together as one to one necessarily. You Fair know enough. what I mean? Yep. And then, yeah, you just, I mean, I hope that she was comfortable with it, but you just get to see Leia Sadow's beautiful, perfect body. Um, but it's they do hilarious things with it because they contort her a million ways, which I think is so funny. Um, and she, but I also love her character specifically because she's like so serious, but like also obsessed with Benicio del Toro, but like not nearly as much as he is with her. Mm-hmm. And the whole scene where Adrian Brody is talking to Benicio del Toro about buying the the art that he saw, and mm-hmm. she's just like looking through the little slot. Yeah, when when Benicio feeds her, what is it supposed to be like a candied cashew or something like that? I think it's a caramel. I think it's a caramel through that little window in the door. Um, that's a special visual. I also um, just really quick love um, 
I love the scene where they've just had sex for the first time. And Benicio, this is like a, this was also really perfect of Benicio del Toro, where he's like starting to like monologue and she's like, I don't love you. And he's like, well, I got, I got big Hotel Chevalier vibes from that particular scene in the movie. I got really big, um, uh, Life Aquatic vibes from Mm. when Bill Murray tries to get, when Zissou's like, like, can I butter you up? For, mm-hmm. Can I butter you up first? I, I took me an hour to get here or whatever it is or four mm-hmm. hours to get here. Right. Okay. While we're in this act, I just want to ask a question. This question is not even really important to me, um, but just for the sake of doing something other than singing this movie's praises for two mm-hmm. hours plus, my question is, is it a shortcoming of this movie that Adrian Brody's character is pretty remarkably similar to Adrian Brody's character in the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think it is a shortcoming because Adrian Brody, I mean, we we know that he's a little bit of a complicated dude outside of this world, but mm-hmm. as as somebody who um we've you know, I if you want to go back and listen to me, I had a lot of feelings about him in the Darjeeling Limited. Um, he really can do things that really pull at me. And yeah. um, clearly, one of my overall criticisms of this movie is um, the time we get with these characters, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but I feel like for this character to have him, he was funny and really great, but yeah, it's like, have him just do something a little bit different, right? Like even Bill Murray's mm-hmm. doing something a little bit different in this. Basically, the only difference is that in Grand Budapest Hotel, he's more heightened and uh more evil mustache twirling you know caricature yeah villain yeah and this he you know he has the moment where he like hugs benicio del toro and that's and that's nice and there's more humanity there but like literally like both characters are like like just after particular pieces of art and yeah. it, and, it, and it's like okay this seems like a little <laughs> bit too much of a repeat. Um okay now can we talk about Jeffrey Wright? Yes. Yes. Okay Jeffrey Wright is our, both of our MVPs. I'm glad we uh, agree on this cuz I feel like it was more normal for us to have different MVPs yeah. in, the, in the past. And I, I want to say too that I didn't totally know who Jeffrey Wright was, by which I mean I couldn't have said, this is who Jeffrey Wright is. Okay. Um, but he is Jim Gordon in the new Batman movie. He is. He is also Felix Leiter in the Craig Bond movies. Yes. And I really uh, grew to appreciate him uh, by watching Westworld. He is a very big part on Westworld. So when the Batman trailer came out, um, I said, who is playing Jim Gordon? And Kenny said, literally what you just said to me. Yep. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And um, so that said, it was nice going into this movie because I now suddenly sort of knew who this guy was. Because yeah. I've seen the – Kenny had just seen No Time to Die. I have seen the Daniel Craig movies except that one, but not recently. Um, and I did not – I did not – like I said, I had seen him, but I had not fully, like, remembered who he was until – um, literally moments before I was about to see this movie, basically. We have to talk a little bit more about Bond before we're done here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to say... <laughs> right, that, <laughs> right, um, yes, we do. <laughs> we're, we're going to have uh, another reason in December to talk about Jeffrey Wright. I'm curious to know if you know this. He's the voice of the Watcher in the What If 
uh, Marvel show on Ooh, Disney Plus. Okay, which is a great role for him. He's yeah, he's got a golden voice. He really uh, does. So, uh, two uh, reasons uh, that I've cherry picked out of many reasons why Jeffrey Wright is the MVP of this film. The first is he has to deliver what I would argue is the funniest line in this movie. Oh, what, which which is? Which is when he is getting lost in the police station and he says, a weakness of cartography, the curse of the homosexual. <laughs> yes. That's the funniest line in the movie. Yes. The second funniest line is a line that I can only half remember, which is part of Owen Wilson's introduction, which is uh, the line, the part that I remember is uh, choir boys half drunk on the blood of Christ. Oh, I wrote this down. I wrote this yeah. down. Um, because this this was one of the lines that I laughed out and nobody else did. The choir boy thing is extremely funny. Okay. Oh, I only wrote the second half. I only wrote down half drunk on the blood of Christ. I that's didn't write the, down the whole thing. Because, the yeah, that's the funny part. part. That, really stun- that really stands <laughs> out. Yeah. That was one of the lines that I just chortled at and no one else did. But the second uh, reason... Uh, why Jeffrey Wright is the MVP is that in addition to having the funniest moment, he also has multiple scenes that you could argue are the heart of this movie. Yes. I I would argue that the one that stands above the rest is when we're still on the talk show set and it Mm -hmm. goes black and white. Mm -hmm. And he's answering the question, why have you written about food so much? Yes. And he delivers this little monologue that is a summary of what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. As a monologue in which he says, uh, basically, I live a solitary life. I chose this life. But there's this one area of life where despite being alienated from the rest of the humanity most of the time because of the life I chose, mm-hmm. in this one area, I can always count on being treated with hospitality yeah. and feeling like I belong there for a moment mm-hmm. before going back to solitude, basically. Yeah. And the the life is like the the... You know, not only the life of the mind, to quote uh, Barton Fink, a Coen Brothers movie, mm-hmm. um, of a writer, but the sort of, you know, adventuring, uh, uh, you know, literary journalist. And um, that is, you know, it, in a nutshell, like what uh, Wes Anderson is is not only attracted to and interested in, but mm-hmm. clearly, like, feels himself. Yes. It's, like, what he, you know, relates to uh, that makes him not only enjoy the work of all the journalists who inspired these characters and who are mentioned by name at the beginning of the credits and the sort of dedication, mm-hmm. but beyond just uh, en- enjoying them as as commodities, he feels a, a, a kinship with them, which... Um, makes him, you know, want to make a movie like this. Yeah. I also feel like it's worth noting that 
so so I'll get into my criticism of the movie and then bring this up, which is related to Jeffrey Wright, which is part of the problem, which we've sort of talked about with Wes Anderson movies, is it's the the problem is the strength, right? So if the thing that we love is the the sets and the world built the world building, I'll even say the color, the um dryness of it, the framing, the framing, the the, whip, the snappy dialogue, the snap, the whip pans, the stunt the, casting, the aesthetic, right? Yeah, which is superficial, like the, yes. the, like it, the 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 movies. Wes Anderson style, he really puts the superficial front and center. If that's, you know, that's key and that's also like fine. You know what I mean? Like it's fine that if you love that and you love that. But it does mean that sometimes the um, emotional depth of the characters are lost, which is part of the reason why you and I both love Moonrise Kingdom and Fantastic Mr. Fox so much. And I personally love Life Aquatic even if I'm projecting. Um, but, you know, part of the reason I think you and I both really just gushed over Moonrise Kingdom is because those characters felt so fleshed out. They felt so genuine and they felt so, like they really needed each, they all needed each other within right. the span of the movie. And so one of my criticisms of this movie is that we have so little time with each character because it's this anthology, because it's supposed to feel like you're reading a literary magazine, that it's really, you. we basically can't, I didn't cry. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. And I cry fucking easy. Like yeah. for me not to cry at something when there it might supposed to be a moment where you could cry. Right. Um, if you don't get me, you're not going to get most people. Yeah. And so um, that I think is a weakness of this movie, which is like sort of unavoidable, sort of like an unavoidable thing. Because if you're going to have the one thing and then try to do it in the structure, you're just going to have to give up on this right. other thing. Yeah. The The – the uh, the easiest comparison in Wes Anderson's filmography is that this movie feels like a uh, sort of one-up of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. But as big as that movie's ensemble is and as much adventure is packed into it, it is still a performance showcase for Ray Fiennes, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. There's no Ray Fiennes in this movie. They're, yes. they're just a bunch of different characters who we spend uh, no more than 30 minutes with. Yeah. And in Grand Budapest, we have something else we've talked about on this podcast, which is the time travel trick, which is that by moving the, the watcher through time, you sort of build in this emotional resonance because it is emotional for humans to see somebody young and then see them old. Yeah. And this movie has some of that as well, but not as much of an age gap. Yes. From young to old. Um, the, oh, so what I wanted to talk about is the mm -hmm. one moment that could have made me cry, maybe if I was in a worse mood, um, <laughs> was I think, and I think that Wes, this is what I mean when I say Wes Anderson placed these in the right places, right? Because mm -hmm. we're not going to have an arc that goes the whole way from the beginning to the end because of the way the movie is structured. Right. And so he does this incredible thing with Jeffrey Wright where we think we're done with Jeffrey Wright's story and you see, 
you know, we sort of got flashes of all of the characters in their living writing quarters um, from the magazine. And Mm -hmm. we now see that Jeffrey writes, we had originally seen his feet and that he had been lying on a, on a chaise. Right. And Bill Murray is holding the, the thing. And um, I forget exactly how it comes about, but there was a part that he cut out. Well, here's the thing. The way it comes about is very funny when you look at it through a meta lens. Uh-huh. Because Bill Murray says about the written piece almost the same thing that we've been saying about different people in the movie. He mm-hmm. says, this is supposed to be about a chef. <laughs> Nescafier says like two lines in this yeah. entire piece. And then he says, well, there was one thing he said to me, but I cut it out. And it because literally it made me too sad. Because it made me too sad. And that's when he pulls out of the trash bin. Right. Which is also hilariously, there's one piece of paper in a metal trash can. So it's like not dirty. It's just crumpled. It's very cartoony. And he, Bill Murray unfurls it and smooths it or whatever. And then we see this, this scene where Jeffrey Wright is with this chef and he's, yeah. he's been poisoned. Do you want to, do you want to? Well, this scene is the reason why I said there's, there are multiple scenes that Jeffrey Wright has that you could say are the heart of the movie. Yes, this is the one. This is the other one. Um, I, I, I think um, I just give a slight edge to the monologue I already spoke about before. But this dialogue also has a lot of what the movie is about in it. And it's the dialogue between Steve Park, p- plays the police chef, and, and Jeffrey Wright. And... Uh, uh, and Steve Park is is having this sort of regretful reverie because the the poison that he ingested has a a new flavor that he's never that he's tasted never before. tasted right and, and then and on top of that that is already very special on top of that they have this dialogue where they acknowledge that they're both foreigners mm-hmm. and they speak about what that experience is like and the feeling that something's always missing. And Jeffrey Wright says something like, maybe one day we'll find what was missing in returning to our homelands. And I don't remember exactly if Steve Park says anything, but I feel like the sense is clear that that sort of rings hollow, that that is not a real likely possibility. And I want to say, because... Okay, you brought up race in the context of the small non-speaking role of Tony Revolori. Mm-hmm. I was going to bring up how uh, I was going to bring up to what extent does it ring false or kind of hit your ear funny mm-hmm. to hear this dialogue about being a foreigner in a movie written and directed by. Uh, the the creator of Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson. (laughs) And um, I think um, what makes that scene work in spite of, you know, the contrast between the material and its source is that you can easily read into it that in addition to talking about literally being foreigners, Mm -hmm. They're both geniuses, basically. Yes. Like they're yes. they're both they they both happen to be foreigners, but also in in any part of the world, even in their homeland, they might 
sort of live the life of a foreigner because they are separate from generally everyone else Mm -hmm. because they are exceptional. And that, I think, is sort of an experience that Wes Anderson has processed and just sort of projected through the lens of, you know, uh, being an expat in a foreign country. Yeah, for sure. And 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 it of course it connects to the different way I was framing similar material earlier when I was saying, look at the special boy. Mm-hmm. You know, this child came out weird. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Wes Anderson wouldn't write about that over and over again unless, you know, he had the experience himself of mm-hmm. being. Uh, a a weird child um and feeling separate from other people yeah and um the alienation that comes with that but also the sort of insist it it also connects very nicely to what we are supposed to be understanding Frances McDormand's character going through mm-hmm. that she's isolated and she admits that she's a little bit sad but she's insistent that she's not lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's a sort of, it's like the point of the movie is to give this glimpse into the uh, special lives of these exceptional people mm-hmm. to illustrate that despite what you might think, the sort of general public's easy perception of what they are subjecting themselves to Mm -hmm. is that they must be very lonely and they could be happy if only they would settle down. Yeah. And um, instead you're supposed to understand uh, like, no, they've, they've, They've chosen this and they've chosen it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And there's something really noble in what they're doing, even though it's atypical and um, at times seems unethical. At, t- at times it seems <laughs> debaucherous. At, at, I would at, argue sometimes it is unethical. And, and, and hazardous to their health, certainly. Mm-hmm. All of that said, that is uh, uh, the majority, but not the full extent of the kind of deeper thinking that I've done about this movie. Yeah, agreed. But also, I want to look at it in another way. Mm -hmm. And I want to make something very clear. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the way that I sort of framed our conversation about the Grand Budapest Hotel, Mm -hmm. because I had a friend in grad school who saw that movie and said like, yeah, but what is it about really? Yeah. Yeah. And here's and here's what I want to say. You you mm-hmm. you articulated the I, I you you I agree with you. You make a great point about the shortcoming of this movie is that we don't have the central character or characters who are fleshed out enough that we can really pin our hopes and feelings onto them. Yeah. And achieve that sort of emotional catharsis. Resonance, yeah. Resonance. Um, and you said that that nothing made you cry and you're an easy mm-hmm. crier. The other point that I want to make is that 
I would never criticize Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy for not making me cry. Sure, yes, absolutely, yeah. And this movie is a comedy. Mm -hmm. And it is really successful as a comedy. And I think that we have been trained to expect more from Wes Anderson Mm-hmm. And also to expect more from filmmakers like Wes Anderson mm-hmm. and expect more from films that are in this sort of nebulous genre that are supposed to be for grownups to appreciate. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a real shortage lately of movies that are comedies full stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. And so I just want to take a moment to say to uh, to to state on the record that like if you evaluated this movie just as a comedy, I think it is funny enough that that is not way off base, mm-hmm. and it's successful as a comedy. Yes, and oh, if, it absolutely is. Yeah, and if it's funny enough, then it's a good comedy. And I and I, if a movie is a comedy like say Anchorman is a comedy, mm-hmm. then I, I'm just going to evaluate it on, on how, uh, how much it amuses me and how much it makes me laugh. Yeah. And this movie made us laugh in the theater quite a, quite a lot. And it mm-hmm. does, the, it has really funny dialogue and it does really surprising visual things. It makes me laugh at the last thing in the world that I want to be laughing at, <laughs> which is police torturing people. <laughs> But it it, uh, uh, it, in, it 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 is in Wes Anderson's squishy, you know, multi-genre kind of a space, and you can evaluate it by a bunch of different metrics. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to preach for a moment for, you know, hey, there is there is such a thing as comedy movies, and um, it it can be more than okay. It can be great for a movie to just be successful for uh, and entertaining for for how much uh, it makes you laugh. Yeah. And I do want to say too that um, I do want to say too that I absolutely agree with you and that um, when I was thinking about this movie and I was thinking about where I would put it on my list, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I was thinking about was that I just pretty much loved every second of watch. It was just fun. Like I was right. just like, cause I, I feel like too, and I haven't, it's so funny. I, this happens to me on Twitter excessively, mm-hmm. which is just, and I think it's, a, it's not an unusual phenomenon, but it happens to me like even in like the smaller circles of like, like small writing circles where I only see the take and I don't see the original thing. Right. And then I have to go searching for it. But when I say it happens, it happens even amongst like, a hundred people, yes. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where, which I feel like is good in the sense that I've like curated my timeline or whatever. But, yeah. um, one of the things I kept, I kept seeing people tweeting about how like Wes Anderson was getting hate for like his style or his aesthetic. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not the movie to criticize him for because mm-hmm. like this is the movie where he is his best, maybe not his most meaningful self, maybe not his most cathartic self maybe not his most art artful in the sense like um like a timeless piece of art that will last forever that will with withstand the test of time mm-hmm. um but he is his most self in this 
he, there is no facade. He's extremely on his bullshit. Yes. And, and like, if you don't like it, that's fine. But like, if you do, it's exactly what you want it to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it totally delivers on expectations in that way. And I would say that it was worth the wait as long as the wait yes. was. So now that I got my sermon about the uh, you know sufficiency of be- of being a comedy out of the way, um, I want to tell you one more deeper thought that I have about this movie, mm-hmm. which is a sort of meta reading. Oh, you know how I love my meta readings of I do media and texts. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you think of this one, and whether you think I'm onto something or I'm way off base or. There's a way to read this movie where um, it is it's te- it's Wes, Anderson, Wes Anderson's tenth feature film, and um, it is a, a story about the death of Wes Anderson. Yes, no, that's absolutely how how I read it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you 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 arrived at the same conclusion. The the conclusion, and I hadn't actually spoken to anybody about this yet, but it does sort of feel like. I, so what I came to this conclusion because I know I keep saying this is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson has ever Wes Anderson. And by that, I mean, it almost felt like a fucking farewell tour. A swan song. Yeah. Yes. And uh, part of the reason I felt that way was because um, having seen the trailer, knowing what we knew about it before seeing it, I wonder if you had the same assumption or if you didn't even have this much of an assumption uh, going into it. I assumed that here's what this movie was basically going to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, the year is like 2019 or something like that. And the French dispatch is going out of business mm-hmm. uh, because print journalism is dead mm-hmm. and isn't that sad. And in fact, it, the movie upends that assumption immediately. And what it is actually about is something more interesting, which is that the year is 1975 and the editor of the French Dispatch has died, and the magazine is will die with it. Ending with that event, and here is the final uh, issue uh, of the of the magazine. Oh, which I also did want to very briefly point out: this is one of the few Wes Anderson movies where we get a very specific time period. Right. Yes. We we spoke about that in Moonrise Kingdom, where you yeah. can say exactly what the date is. It's not in this sort of, uh, I used the word squishy before I used the word nebulous before. It's in this sort of time out of time. Yeah. It's like, t- like royal styles time can time look out of however time. they want. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's the 70s, but also it's today, but it's neither. And anything that happened previously, we just know it happened before 1975, but sort right. of recently because with it's within these people's lives. But we know this is 1975 because we see the dates like birth and death for the magazine. 19, yes. I believe it's 1925 to 1975, yes, 50 years. Uh, and uh, so if the uh, French dispatch is uh, we, we've talked a little bit in some of the past movies about how some of the, you know, sometimes a main character is like a Wes Anderson insert character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for Rushmore, that's one thing because it's like a looking back on childhood. But then later it gets into, you know, Wes Anderson, the established filmmaker Mm-hmm. And so Steve Zizou is a kind of filmmaker. 
And in this, you know, if the magazine is like, if putting together the magazine is like making a movie, then the editor of the magazine is the director Mm -hmm. of the film or the filmography. And the editor dies and it begins with his obituary. And then we sort of circle back to that in the end and everything in between is the final issue of his, you know, output. Um, And it is sort of um, just an imagining Mm -hmm. of like, okay, when I die, what's the last thing that's going to be left behind, which is basically going to be the uh, terminus of my legacy. Yeah. And, and how are going to, how are people going to, um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say immortalize that, but how are they going to sort of summarize that and mm-hmm. sort of put it to rest? That's, uh, sort of underneath the surface of this movie because a lot of other things are going on. Well, and I would actually argue, I mean, the the a lot of other things that are going on feels like Wes Anderson is like every single thing that I have ever loved about making movies. Right. I have to put into this movie. Right. Because I will never get another chance. That's what it feels like. And I mean there's I mean which is there's no there's nothing to say that he doesn't get another chance, but it feels like he is being given a last chance and he said, "Well, then fuck it. I'm doing literally everything." Or since it's an an anthology, one other way of looking at it is I'm I'm reminded of times when an author dies and they mm-hmm. had an unfinished work and then somebody else puts it together and kind of fills in the gaps themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like an imagining of like, okay, well, if I died with like three unfinished projects, <laughs> then what would it look like for someone to, you know, make the posthumous, you know, the pale king, you know, version of of that it thing also, I never completed? It, you know, the other thing that I was thinking is what if this is Wes Anderson saying goodbye to Bill Murray? Well, it, it's not, and we can talk about that. But okay, good. but that would that would be very poignant if that because like turned out if to be the case. It's I mean maybe you know something I don't, but I do. I'm looking up how old Bill Murray. I do says Will. I do. I, if you would say that, then I suspect I do. Yes. Um. So he's seventy-one. So I guess he could live for many more years. But Bill Hopefully. Murray could die. He could fucking die. Sure. I have the, I have a real strong opinion that if you if you're 70 and you die, it's not a surprise. I'm not saying it's not sad. It could be fucking devastating, but it's not a fucking surprise at that point. I know you're not going to budge on this. So I, yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, the perhaps the most important thing in my mind that we could do now is: uh, Are you prepared to uh, update your rankings? I think so. Um. I do have uh, two more things I want to talk about very quickly. Please. The first is that this movie has more, we sort of talked about it, but this movie specifically has more nudity than in the other movie, you, which you, I thought was yep. interesting. I just thought was interesting and worth noting because he's had nudity before, but it's usually just like boobs. Um, and it's just like a sort of background character. 
Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was the that we haven't talked about that it, this felt like a new aesthetic, mm. <laughs> which is the freeze the freeze frame shots of people. Yes, the the uh, live action sort of tableaus. But the th- so the first thing I want to say, I'm going to say two things that are maybe going to seem contradictory. The first thing is I think they work great. I feel like they they're something that is just so much within Wes Anderson's aesthetic that it almost feels ridiculous he hasn't done this yet. Very special um, part of the movie. It's very Visually. it happens all of the time. It's always very special. Um I like that you can see the characters moving a little bit in every single one so you know for a fact that it's not. I feel like it's very also very much Wes Anderson being like, you know, let's not hyper hyper CGI things. Clearly he's using mediums at hand because he's also doing stop frame he's also doing animation so he's not saying that like you know fuck computers or something like that but he is very much saying like look at the things we can do with our hands i guess Mm -hmm. um that said do you remember when this was a viral video trend a few years ago no i don't okay so this is where i think it's sort of my contradiction is which is that like there was a trend for a while Mm -hmm. three or four years ago before Mm -hmm. this movie came out for sure before they filmed this movie for sure Mm-hmm. where people, regular ass people, were setting up very elaborate um, situations where they would pose and then someone with their fucking iPhone would like, po- you know, like, sc- you know, scroll around and, and get videos of them. Yeah. The reason I bring this up is because when you don't know that and you see it, it's all the things I just said. But when you do know that, right. it feels so you- weird. Like, it feels like, what? like, what do you, like, Wes Anderson... I don't know. Maybe he really didn't know about this viral trend, but it sort of feels like Wes Anderson used a viral trend for something which seems like antithetical to his existence. He might have been inspired by that. Yeah. And I can see how if you had that context, you you can't help but think of that, which is yeah. sort of distracting. Which, which again, I don't think it... I don't think within the context of just looking at the movie, it changes anything. Mm-hmm. But it was it was just weird later for me to be like, that was a thing. That was right. a fucking thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what that's what I have to say. Okay. Yeah, I'm Rankings. glad you I'm glad you brought that in because I couldn't have brought that in. I didn't have that knowledge uh, or I've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> do you want to start with your rankings or should I start with mine? You know what? You should start with yours okay. because I realized as I was sitting here and I tried to see if I had put it into the show notes. I don't totally remember what my rankings were, so I'm just gonna jot down what I think they should be now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I remember my ranking of the nine movies prior to this. There's just one spot in the middle where I'm not totally certain about two, yeah. of, two of them, which are neck and neck. But um, uh, whether this is consistent with that or not doesn't matter to me. These are my rankings as of today. Yeah. Um. First, I'll say that, uh, so now we've got 10 movies to rank. Yes. And my top five are the same as they were before. Okay. Or, well, I'm the fifth one is the one that I'm not certain about. I'm uh-huh. not certain if it was five or six. Yeah. Um, but uh, Which at that point, it's so in the middle that like. Here's what my top five are. Okay. In order. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Moonrise Kingdom. Rushmore. And then here's where it gets tricky. The Darjeeling Limited. 
is yeah. my number five. Yes. Okay, now I'm going to start from the bottom. And what I'm about to say is the same as it was before. Mm-hmm. Except the numbers are different because they're one larger. Right, yes. My number 10 is Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. My number nine is The Life Aquatic. Sorry. I know. It's fine, baby. <laughs> My number eight is Isle of Dogs. Okay. So that just leaves six and seven. And it leaves this movie and the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. And I am worried that uh, it is perhaps best explained by recency bias. Yeah. But I am going to give the edge to this movie. Okay. French Dispatch is my number six. Yeah. Bumping the Grand Budapest Hotel down to number seven. Yes. Are you ready to go now? I think so. Could you could you tell them to me? Could you just go straight through? Yeah. I'll one to the, ten really do quick? Them all in order. One. Okay. Mr. Fox. Yes. Two. Tannenbaums. Mm-hmm. Three. Moonrise Kingdom. Four. Rushmore. Five. Darjeeling. Mm-hmm. Six. The French dis- French Dispatch. Mm-hmm. Seven. Grand Budapest Hotel. Eight. Isle of Dogs. Nine. L- the Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. And ten bottle rocket. Okay. So I know for a fact that my top three are the same. Um, which if you'll remember, my all of my shit is weighted weird because of the life aquatic. Yes, I know that's your number one. So that's number one. Fantastic Mr. Fox is still number two. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I agree that that is a perfect film. That is there is no criticism to that film. That is his masterpiece, in my opinion. Mine too. Um, Moonrise Kingdom, a close, nearly close masterpiece. I will. To Fantastic I, so Mr. I, Fox. I'll just remind you real quick. Last time when we had nine movies to rank, I said it was helpful for me to make three categories of three each. Yes. And I said yeah. my top three were ten out of ten, and my middle three were nine out of ten, and mm-hmm. my bottom three were other. Yes. <laughs> Depending. Yes. Um. So. This is where I get a little bit fuzzy because I know I know that Royal Tenenbaums was lower than you appreciated for me. You mm-hmm. were like, how dare you put that in the second half? Um, so I think that where I'm – and I can't remember what I did with Darjeeling Limited. But my heart – this is what my heart is saying right now. My heart is saying that Darjeeling Limited is number four. Mm-hmm. I think my heart is then doing uh, – Grand Budapest, mm. um, then Royal Tenenbaums, mm. which is number six. Mm-hmm. French Dispatch, I'm putting at seven. Okay. Rushmore at eight. Oof. I I know it's go like on, again. Go, it's go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, forget. Bottle it. Rocket, Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs is my least favorite. Okay. Which do you remember why different? Isle of Dogs is my least favorite? Is it because of the Greta Gerwig character? What? No. Okay. <laughs> Isle of Dogs. No, I Love Dogs is my least favorite because I actually don't love looking at it. Oh, okay, yeah. Remember, it's all gray, and that love, makes me feel bad. I love looking at it, yeah. I know you do, which is fine. I This is one of those things where it's like, 
it just literally makes my like I literally am taking antidepressants because when it's dark outside I get fucking sad so of Mm -hmm. course I don't like watching a movie that's mostly gray when it's animation and could be whatever the fuck yeah I wonder (laughs) if this is a little different because I remembered that we both had Bottle Rocket as our bottom bottom yeah maybe I've just that's possible maybe I've just decided it's also possible I just remembered it wrong and assumed that I think that makes sense I mean the thing about Bottle Rocket here's the if if the French Dispatch is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson has ever Wes Anderson. Bottle Rocket is the least Wes Anderson has ever Wes Anderson because right. he didn't have there's that movie lacks aesthetic. Um, Not completely, but it, it, it's it's, it's, like, it's, um, it's definitely more like dehydrated or yeah. something, mm-hmm. or it's it's like he just didn't have the resources, he didn't have the time. To be clear, um, I I still I still think that movie is pretty good, and I and oh I like, I like it. Bo- yeah. I do like Bottle Rocket. I think all I just, his movies are good to great, as I said before. I just think it, that Bottle Rocket... Just one of them has to be the least good. And it's it's not as exemplary. So in mm-hmm. that sense, it falls to the bottom. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think that... Th- this is my feeling about The French Dispatch. Maybe it'll grow on me and I'll, I'll move it. It's hard to... It's actually, in some ways, the same way that you are saying you have recency bias. Mm-hmm. I think I'm having it in the opposite way. Yeah. Um... I'm curious to see how it holds up to multiple because I think it will hold up to multiple viewings. Let, yep. let me actually just put that out there. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious to see how it will hold up um, once I feel like I've actually absorbed it as a film the whole way. Right. And so because of that, it's really hard as much as as much as a movie can just be a comedy and have that be good. It is going to be hard for me to wait. Um a movie that is just sort of like pure comedic pleasure and pure candy, let's say, mm-hmm. over something like Moonrise Kingdom, which like both makes me laugh, is beautiful, and breaks me. Yes, I I totally get where you're coming from. I basically agree with you. You can see that. Yes, in absolutely. My, you can see that in my rankings and the ways that they're similar to yours. I also think that there is something to be said for this movie, The French Dispatch, like, picks its moments yes it definitely picks its battles i would even say to slow down and to get quiet and to make you feel something and there there's something to be said for um maybe there isn't that you know quite so resonant a catharsis but it it is there are these like little moments of pathos that are sprinkled throughout. Mm -hmm. And that is something different that could be, you know, just as valuable or um, you maybe don't, you don't feel it as strongly, but it can be just as, um, uh, the only word I can think of is powerful, but I I will say too, I know we've talked, I know we talk all about a lot about us because of me, nostalgia on this podcast. And something I have been thinking about a lot is that, if I had seen the French Dispatch when I was 17 instead of The Life Aquatic, this movie would have been nothing but formative to me. Sure. It would have blown my mind. Mm-hmm. I would have literally, as soon as I had access to it, watched it scene by scene. I would. I mean, I'm still probably going to do this to some, some degree, but like the thought of being a young person and seeing the French Dispatch um, – when you haven't seen that many movies before and right. maybe when you have the time to sit with a movie. Like, Cause I think that's part of the life aquatic for me is that I had the time to sit there and just think about this movie. Right. 
Um, and it, it set off all those little sensors of joy for me. Yeah. Um, the French dispatch, I think, would really fuck me up. I think the <laughs> if Fr- I was 17 in the best way. <laughs> I think the French dispatch sort of signals to you with its comedy and its fast pace and its small roles and its huge cast. It sort of signals to you that you're supposed to take it as a fun romp. Mm-hmm. And it would be very easy to enjoy the romp and then go home and hardly think about it ever again. But I think it is really rewarding to think about it and take it seriously. Yes. And look at it through the lens of like, okay, what are, you know, the themes and what are, you know, the characters um, feeling? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I'm going to move on briskly now go ahead yes i think i think we've done a good job i think so too i just have two and a half orders of business uh before we conclude go ahead uh the next is uh because of me uh we've talked a lot about the oscars on this podcast right and i'm just curious to ask you the question do you think that the french dispatch is a serious contender for any categories oscar nominations I mean, it must be for something, right? I think, yeah, for something. Editing? Uh, edit- Just the fucking, I mean, I mean, this is one of those movies mm-hmm. where it must be for editing because like they do so much shit that they they did on the cutting room floor, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Editing, um, production design. Uh, yeah. Like I feel like even if it doesn't get anything else, it'll get editing even as like a pity vote. But, but, for, but putting on the back burner those sort of you know categories that get lesser attention um what what about the sort of marquee categories i have no fucking idea first of all my opinion my opinion is that i don't think that any performance has any chance of being nominated in this movie absolutely because there's just too many of them the only one i could see is jeffrey wright for supporting that would be a phenomenal and and well deserved and i would love that there's just nobody has enough time to yes. shine and steal the show. And so I think it's just going to be overlooked in that yes. way. So I feel like the highest profile category that it really has a chance in is screenplay. Yes. Which would in this case be original screenplay. Yes. But then beyond that, you also have to ask the questions like, okay, well, is the it, are there enough best picture nominees that this could realistically be one of them especially because best picture there's more there's you know eight to ten usually nine um and uh and then you have to ask like well what about wes anderson for director and i think yeah i think that that is pretty unlikely i'd love to see it but i think it's unlikely and i also think that the best picture thing is kind of unlikely but that feels like a real coin toss to me, honestly. Yeah, coin toss is a good way of putting it. I, I, I almost like wouldn't be surprised either way. Agreed. I mean, I also like feel like I don't have a great sense of um, what is going to be beloved, right? right? Mm-hmm. That is that are that I don't have a sense of the movies that have come out this year because the movies that I can think of that have come out are like this and well, like Dune. There are still well, Dune's going to be <laughs> huge because Dune is a movie that can play both as a blockbuster and an yes. awards darling, mm-hmm. and I think we're going to see that. 
Um, but there's still two more months in the year. And, exactly. you know, those two months are going to, you know, it's going to be disproportionately weighted. You know, most of the movies that are going to be in that conversation, you know, we haven't seen yet. And we yeah. might not even know what they are. <laughs> um, so the sort of half an order of business is that I said that we were going to bring up Bond again. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say, the re- so um, perhaps you've looked at enough IMDb trivia pages to know that most of them are bloated with um, different statements that say, oh, these two people who are in this movie, um, they were also both in this other movie. <laughs> And it's okay. That's a lot of times. That's not very interesting. Yes. Um, I know Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan have shared the screen together. They in don't. Lady Bird in Little Women. They're not even in the same section Scene. of this movie. So yeah. that's like irrelevant, basically. But what is interesting, I think, is how many people from Daniel Craig's Bond movies <laughs> are in the French Dispatch, um, and. As the trivia states, Benicio del Toro, Jeffrey Wright, Christoph Waltz, don't, I'm not going to say this name correctly, Matthew Amalric. Okay. Do you know who Mateo? I'm- Do you know who I'm referring to? No. He plays the commissar in okay. this movie, and he played Mr. Green in Quantum of Solace, oh. the most forgotten Daniel Craig Bond movie, um, <laughs> and uh, Leia Sadeau. Um, have, yes. have all been in uh, recent Bond movies and they're all in this movie and n- not to mention the fact that uh, here's a little trivia for Edgar Wright movies bringing it back to Last Night in Soho which I also uh-huh. just saw did you know I can't remember if we talked about it when we talked about Edgar Wright in Hot Fuzz directed by Edgar Wright mm-hmm. Timothy Dalton who played James Bond, appears. Yeah. And then in The World's End, directed by Edgar Wright, Pierce Brosnan, who played James Bond, appears. Oh. Which begs the question, where do you go from there? And (laughs) and Edgar Wright's answer to that question was, in uh, Last Night in Soho, Uh uh, Diana Rigg is in the movie, who was a Bond girl. She was right, she yes. was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes. Which is the one movie where Bond is played by a man named George Lazenby. <laughs> and in that movie, James Bond gets married and his wife gets killed. Yes. Um, so uh I thought it was uh just, you know, for my trivia brain, it was a stroke of genius to to Edgar Wright uh to cast Diana Rigg. For that mm-hmm. reason. But also it brings me to, um, I really, really hope that one day in the not too far future that Daniel Craig oh my God. is going to be in an Edgar Wright movie. And also I would love him to work with Wes Anderson too. Yeah, that would be very good. And that would just sort of neatly complete both of these, you know, meta narratives also, like, Daniel Craig, I mean, we saw Daniel Craig in Knives Out. You know what I mean? Well, yes. And I I wanted to also sort of bring it back to Knives Out because um, there's a lot of talk uh, um, nowadays about the um, death of 
movies for grownups. Mm-hmm. And there are still movies for grownups, but you have to find them in indie cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there used to be a time, which we are so young that it's hard to remember, but there used to be a time when, when movies made for grownups had the potential to like play like blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's only superhero movies and things adjacent to that. Um, and if you want something for adults, then you have to, you know, have a, a, a movie theater like The Loft in your area. Or it's all on television, right? It's all yes. it's all gone to prestige uh, TV, which we... Or were- you have... um. That what was that fucking three and a half hour long movie that was on Netflix? The Irishman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had no other description that I needed to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, 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 the point that I want to make is um, Knives Out is a really special movie that I think everyone recognizes as special. You you I know that this is true because. Angie's moving around, so you might hear that in the background. Angie, hey baby, hey um, pod, uh, uh, smug pet, pod pup, pod pup, um, nailed it. Look no further than the fact that if you are uh, any kind of a cinephile, basically, like all your hopes and dreams for the future are just pinned on the fact that. You know that Catherine Hahn has been cast in Knives Out too. That's like I know. That's all that anyone cares about, basically. <laughs> um, it, and and uh, the the phenomenon that I that I uh, wanted to point out that I just this thought just crystallized in my mind between last night and today is that what I in the in the landscape of what people call no more movies for grownups. I think what is lacking is the phenomenon of exciting news. This filmmaker is working with this movie star. Mm-hmm. If if you're a movie star like a Tom Cruise, the expectation is he's only going to do Mission Impossible or something really similar to that. And he's only going to work with the Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie, who has made the last three Mission Impossible movies, there's no longer such a thing as big news. Tom Cruise is going to work with Edgar Wright or mm-hmm. is going to work with Chloe Zhao or, or something like that. And um, Knives Out and Knives Out 2 are like we've just funneled like all of our energy for that <laughs> phenomenon into this one exception to the rule yeah. that like oh we're excited about Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker and also look Daniel Craig and Jamie Lee Curtis and Chris and Captain America like yes. are all in this movie that's not yes. based on anything that's, that we've never heard of that's not that's uh, not as important as the the real final order of business that I actually wanted to close out with. Okay. Which is why I said that I think I do know something that you don't know, which okay. is, do you know anything about Wes Anderson's next film? <gasps> no. Okay. So that we just had to talk about this just to, oh my God. to wrap up just a, <laughs> a look ahead at what the future might hold. I'm I'm going to get this news from Screen Daily. There's a lot of places online where you could find this. 
I, I chose Screen Daily. Um, I'm just reading now. Uh-huh. As as uh, Jeffrey Wright says in the film, I'm reciting again. <laughs> Wes Anderson's next film is titled Asteroid City, uh, with production underway uh, on the feature in Spain. <gasps> the film will star Anderson regular Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, At first, I thought there was a character named Anderson regular. <laughs> The new film will be another ensemble piece with a previously announced cast alongside Murray. That includes, and just bear in mind those words ensemble piece and just bear in mind, like picture Christoph Waltz and, oh, how, yes. and how little you saw him in this movie. Yes. Just know that that is a possibility yes. for the extent to which we will see these people. Okay. That includes Margot Robbie. Tom Hanks. Oh, fuck. Will. Wait, as high as you are now, you are going to get that low. Oh, no. When I say the next name. Kevin Spacey? (laughs) No, he worked with Edgar Wright not that long ago. That's right. The next name is Scarlett Johansson. Oh. I told you. But (laughs) hang on, I'm going to build you back up. Okay. Jeffrey Wright. (gasps) Mm -hmm. Rupert Friend. Adrian. Who the fuck is that? He was also in this movie, small part. <laughs> I looked him up. I, apparently, he was on Homeland. He's been in other things, too. Okay. Adrian Brody. Uh-huh. Tilda Swinton. Mm. Brian Cranston. <gasps> previously only voice acted for him. Yes. Assuming that this is not an animated movie, because they're... Ma- it's called Asteroid City, so who the fuck knows? But they're making it in Spain. Presumably, they are filming it. <laughs> they're, they're making it in Spain, but they're just drawing pictures. Well, they did travel to do the voices for um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right, because of the plane. But anyway. Yeah, continue. Um, I'm presuming this is not animated. Yeah. Hope Davis, who I also had to look up, seems like she's mostly done TV. Uh-huh. Liev Schreiber, who we haven't talked about, is in the French Dispatch. Uh-huh. Jason Schwartzman and Tony Revolori. Oh, good. That's what we know about the cast so far. Then it says Okay. Then it says plot details are yet to be announced. Uh-huh. Um so as far as I can tell, there's basically nothing else to know about it as of now. Yes. But uh how exciting would it be if Tom Hanks is more than just like a Christoph Waltz level cameo. In How this exciting movie. would it be if Tom Hanks and Bill Murray get to interact a lot? Re- yeah, that has that happened before? I feel like it hasn't. Not that I can think of. But my God, I mean that would be precious, even if the movie is trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that could that could put asses in seats. Uh, just yeah, that, that detail alone. So uh, who knows how long the wait will be, but uh, we are uh, that that's what we have to look forward to. Oh, man, I will say, um, let me look. Let me look at this really quick. So when you're looking at his movies, we're going 96, 98, two years, 98, 01, three, 01, 04, three, 04, 07, three, 07, 09, two, 09, 2012 is three, mm-hmm. <laughs> to do some math. 12 to 14 is two. 14 to 18 is four. Mm-hmm. And then 2018 to 2021 should have come out in 2020. So t- we can even say like two to three years there. So 
Yeah, and apparently, yeah, it's ex- apparently they're already in the middle of production, so that, okay, that's promising. So I was going to say, like, it's sort of exciting. It makes sense that we would know about a new Wes Anderson movie already, mm-hmm. considering that um, this one was supposed to be out so long ago. Yeah, but it still really is exciting that we're get we're going to be getting another one, quote unquote, so soon. Assuming that things go fingers well, crossed, you know? I hope I hope so. And let me uh, wrap up by saying this: that here's what I'm hoping for. The, it, the, I'll point out, as I already pointed out twice, that this says the new film will be another ensemble piece, um, which to me is no longer really exciting. Mm-hmm. And my hopes and dreams are that the best case scenario for this movie is that it is a return to uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. With, because the Royal Tenenbaums is to me the best example of this is a a remarkable ensemble but also these characters are so fleshed out you really feel for them um and and so i i what i would really love to see him return to is a kind of focus on character that will make the next movie little more Royal Tannenbaums and a little less Grand Budapest Hotel. Now, I do have one piece of information, which maybe you know, but you haven't said it. Okay. Because I was just looking at the Wikipedia page when I was looking at this stuff. Uh-huh. And it does describe it as a, well, it gets a little bit silly, but as a romantic comedy drama. I said the drama a little bit quieter because it's mm-hmm. sillier, but the idea of it being a romantic comedy Seems promising to me. If it is about two people falling in love, that's great news in my mind. That's that seems very. That seems like yes. a story that I would like to see him tell. That is what I at want this point from him. Yes. yes, and I think that that speaks exactly to what you're saying, um, Royal Tenenbaums wise, um, but with an actual new. It's like the same feeling, but with a new context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, we finally did it, didn't we? We did, Wes and. Yes. And now, uh, since we are putting this up tomorrow, since tomorrow is the last day of the month, (laughs) I just have to turn around and edit it as quickly as possible. And uh, in doing so, I will try to make it sound like we podcasted it that way on purpose. Oh, well, well, I want to say before we sign off, I know I always tell you that I love you at the end of this and you tell me, but I want to say that... um, I am so grateful, truly, that I have been given the pleasure of being able to talk to you about these movies um, and that after seeing this movie, I didn't just have to sit around and stew about it and that I got to talk to you about it for two and a half hours. Um, and I am I really love you and I'm really grateful for that. I love you too. That's very uh, meaningful for you to say that to me. I think, it, 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 quite frankly... My gratitude towards you for the same thing is so great that it it almost makes it feel ridiculous that you should feel gratitude and express it towards me. Oh, my sweet. Because it's, you know, uh, uh, I I bring it back as I so often have to the blank check with Griffin and David podcasts I, I love so much. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, it's it's like you know this. Like we we wouldn't we wouldn't do this at all if we didn't love listening to podcasts. 
and love that so much and be sort of creative ourselves that we want to channel that love into making our own thing. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's, uh, one of the most fun, enjoyable things I could think to do to take my favorite podcast and just do my own rip off of it <laughs> with one of my good friends. So, um, thank you for, for doing that with me. You're welcome. And join us next month for your November episode of the Smug Buds. Bye, Will. Bye, Liz. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at Youngest of One, and his website is WilliamHoffacker.com. You can find Liz at Exclamate on Instagram, at Exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, ElizabethDeannaMorrisLakes.com. Our website is SmugBuds.com, and the podcast is at SmugBuds on Twitter and Instagram.